0: Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Serena. And I'm Ed. And you're listening to Every Romcom, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedy seriously. This week on Every Romcom, we're continuing the wedding series with a story
1: about a woman determined to sabotage a wedding.
2: We'll take a wedding music trivia challenge as we discuss a film that features karaoke, a sing along, a first dance, and more.
0: And we'll explore the rom-com trope of the gay best friend as we talk about the 1997 Julia Roberts rom-com, My Best Friend's Wedding. Too. Nice to have you back again. Hey, Jen. Hey, Ed.
2: Hey, guys. It's good to be back.
0: You guys are now the 1997 crew because I'm pretty sure this is only the second movie we've covered about 1997 after Chasing Amy, and you were both there for that as well. I thought it was funny anyway. Good so, year, I guess. Yeah, pretty good year. Yeah. So we're, as you can see, we've got Serena with us, and we're also welcoming back Ed from the Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly karaoke podcast. So we're glad that we've roped you in again.
2: I'm very easy to rope in.
0: <laughs> and um kind of inspired by your show, actually. I decided that this week, and also our conversation last time um, where Serena said she liked doing trivia, I decided that this week we would do a trivia challenge. So... It does involve music trivia, but it's also music trivia related to weddings. So I hope you guys are ready because Lee thought they were really difficult. Oh,
2: okay. Oh, and if Lee thought they were difficult, we are <laughs> we are boned.
0: I mean, I don't know. it all trivia a lot of it's dependent, you know, on your area of expertise. So you know, you might be great. We want to give it a try anyway. Absolutely. okay. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> okay, so. The first question I have for you relates to the music that is usually played at weddings. So a lot of times at a traditional wedding, you will hear one song when the bride is coming down the aisle, and then one song when people are when the bride and the groom are leaving together married at the end of the wedding. So the first song that's played when the bride is coming down the aisle, um, it's called the Bridal Chorus, and it goes, dun, 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 dun. So my question for you is, who wrote that song? Wagner. Oh, right off the gate, very nice. Wow. I and I forgot. Like I, I guess that's one point to add, but I haven't really like established any kind of prize or anything. <laughs> but we'll try to keep track of this. Okay, so that's good right away. Serena, were you? Would you have gotten that? Do you think? No, I have no idea. Okay, so yeah, the answer. I just
1: assumed that song was called "Here Comes the Bride."
0: Yeah. But- <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> as did I. I did not know about this until I did the research for it. So yeah, that was Richard Wagner who made who wrote that song. Okay, so then the second question is there's a song at the end of the wedding <phenarks> you guys get the drift? Yeah yes. yeah okay. So the question then is who wrote the wedding march commonly played at the end of weddings? I may have stumped you guys on this one and yeah, I don't have a hint no, prepared I, either. Yeah, no idea.
2: I'm like, I'm going between two. I'm going between two because I, I did take a classical music class when I was an undergrad. And mm. Mm, wait, march wait, was it Mendelssohn? Yes.
0: yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Two I'm points losing. for Ed. Two points for <laughs> Ed. Yes. That would be Felix Mendelssohn. So there's an additional question about that song. So that song was originally written by Mendelssohn in 1842, and it was inspired by a Shakespeare play. Which play was it written for?
1: Much Ado About Nothing. I have no idea.
0: That's a good guess, but
2: but but yeah. not the one. Hmm. It's one the, of the. Uh, go ahead. Adam would get this one. My co-host would get this one because he's a big Shakespeare guy. I'm a big Shakespeare guy, but I. Oh. Uh, Trying to think what. Well, ends Serena. Your Serena
0: was pretty close. Serena was pretty close, yeah. and, and actually, I it's funny really because about. it's one of the other plays that um, I directed too. <laughs> Oh, a Midsummer's Night Dream.
1: Okay, oh sorry. I should have let yeah, Ed. Be. <laughs> you, yeah, that, that was just a that was like a gen trivia question.
0: I win the gen trivia.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you were you were also
0: really close with much ado though. Ed, yeah, do you think you would have gotten that if I hadn't given Serena an unfair no, hint? No, I
2: don't think I would have.
0: Okay, so we got two points for Ed, one point for Serena. I'm giving that to you, Serena. Oh, thanks. Okay. That was great. Okay. So moving on, there's some, I have a couple questions for you related to music and wedding movies and particularly uh, music in another movie by the same director of my best friend's wedding, PJ Hogan. So PJ Hogan, the director of today's movie also directed the wedding movie classic Muriel's Wedding starring Tony Collette as Muriel. So here's another three part question for you. Okay. Sorry. I, I like the, the many part questions. What band is the character of Muriel obsessed with in the movie? ABBA. That's right. Two points for Serena now. All right. Okay. Follow-up question. What song by the band ABBA does she perform in a lip sync contest with her best friend played by Rachel Griffiths? Uh, So what ABBA song do they perform together in the lip sync contest?
2: I'm going to just wager a guess because I've never seen Muriel's Wedding. Rachel Griffiths was in this also, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, role. I'm going to say take a chance on me. I'm just guessing, though.
0: No, not not take a chance on me, but good guess. Is it Dancing Queen? No, not Dancing Queen. I'll give you guys one Mm. more collective guess. A A collective guess? You can talk together. You can talk together. I'm not going to give you a hint. Okay, what Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'll give you a hint and this will be really okay, easy yeah. when I give you the hint, but oh, it's God. okay. So, um the song relates to history.
2: Waterloo. There you go. Oh,
0: uh, there we go. Okay, so what does that put us at? do you have now 3 points, I think? Serena, you have okay. 2. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. You guys aren't keeping track. I mean, come Sorry. on. Sorry. I'm reading the questions. Keep track of your points. <laughs> okay, and then the final question which song from the band ABBA does Muriel choose to play when she walks down the aisle for her wedding? And it's it's thematically appropriate, people. Ah, uh, thematically appropriate. A bit of a deep cut,
1: but thematically appropriate.
0: Okay. I'm obviously the only crazy ABBA fan. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, you are. I mean, I I love ABBA,
0: but I just I'm drawing a blank. All right. right, One more. Another hint. hint. One more. One more hint. And if you guys don't get it after this, you won't get it. So the title of the song is also words that you might say during a wedding ceremony. Three, two, one. Okay. the, The song is I do, I do, I do. Uh, I love me or leave me take your choice but believe me i love you i do i do i do i do i do yeah and fun gen trivia fact is that my first wedding which of course i we divorced after two years but it was a great wedding we played that as i, I, as I we walked there. back down the aisle yeah you were there and we played um come what may on the way up to the up to the like, you know, minister. And then we played, I do, I do, I do afterwards. It was a very, like um, you know, Moulin gen- Rouge come what may. Yeah. But, but it was like, oh, a, it was okay. like a slow version of it. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it was from the second Moulin Rouge soundtrack, whatever. Anyway, it was a very <laughs> early twenties thing to do at your wedding basically. <laughs> okay. So right. we're done with the Muriel's wedding questions. I think, I think Ed won. Um again? no, we got one more section.
1: Oh, sorry. Oh, oh.
0: yeah, I'm okay. sorry. This is a lot of trivia questions. But like I was I we've never go. done trivia before, so I thought Can it would I- be fun. All right, all right. Okay, so so last questions. According to insider.com, in 2018, and remember the year because you know these things affect lists. Spotify made a list of the 50 most popular wedding first dance songs based on the songs being included on first dance playlists on Spotify. So the first question, and I, and I'm going to tell you guys, I would have never gotten this right. Okay. What song is number one on Spotify's collection of most uh, listed first dance songs? Is it that Ed Sheeran song? What's the name?
1: (laughs) Oh, is that a yes? (laughs) God. Oh, 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 what is it called? something about
0: I'm trying to, like, think of the words. (laughs) Well, I'm already impressed because I would have been nowhere with this question and you've already got the artist. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's the song about i can i can see like the music video of like the interpretive dancing i mean can um, you sing
0: any of it like i i mean not that i would know you know what I, I feel bad taking this but i'm i i you're I gonna feel sing like it. A, it yeah
2: i feel i, I feel like if could. there's an ed sheeran song that would be you know a first dance you know what it's, it is it's thinking out loud
0: that's right all right okay. so but right. i'm gonna give I'm
2: the only Ed Sheeran. i mean the like that's the only Ed Sheeran song that makes sense in that context.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Serena, is that the song you were looking for? Well, c- someone sing, can you sing a
0: little bit of it?
2: Always putting me <laughs> on the spot.
0: <laughs> yep. Go, um, go
2: quick pause. Hold on.
0: He's got to get his instrument warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> no, does. no,
2: no. I, uh, I got to look it up. I've done it at karaoke and I am not an Ed Sheeran guy, but uh, I need to, I, I need to see the, the words for this. When your legs don't work like they used to before, and I can't sweep you off of your feet, will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from the cheek? That one.
0: Yay. Yes, Yep. that's (laughs) it. Okay, so you would have guessed that if you knew the title.
1: Yeah, if I knew the title, right. and I, I just couldn't think of like the words, but I knew that song. Right,
0: was... I'm quite, I'm quite a fair and merciful judge here, so I'm giving you both a half point on that. Oh, um, thanks. Which let's see, Ed gets teamwork. What? <laughs> so we should be on a trivia team together. Yeah, Ed. right. Solid. Ed, does that put you at like three and a half?
2: It's three and a half to two and a half. Yeah. To two yeah. and a half.
0: All right. Very good. Okay. So we got two more questions to like, you know, to work with here. So the second question, name the, vo- this is so easy in my opinion. So I'm going to be disappointed if nobody gets it. Name the vocalist on the second most popular first dance song at last. Etta James. Et- oh, yeah. There you go. He beat you this time. So yeah, he beat, he beat me. And I don't think you have a chance to win Serena, but you have a chance to make one more point if you would like. So yeah, go, go. And the last question, what song, which is included on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, comes in at the number 13 most popular first dance song? Uh,
1: like, girl, you'll be a woman soon. It's not that song, is it? That I hope Is that a guess?
2: Is
0: that a guess, Is that a guess or a joke? <laughs> God,
2: not I really sure. hope that's not the answer.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. Um I guess it's a guess. You could
0: say it's a guess. No, nope. but I uh, yeah. uh. Okay, so
2: so my guess then is you never can tell. Chuck Berry.
0: Nope. But good but oh. good but good guess. Slightly slightly more decent than Serena. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> so I am so in love with you. Al Green. Oh yeah. Whatever oh, okay. you that was, that was, want to do, it's that all I right need. Soundtrack. Yeah, I can't oh, yes. think of at what
1: point <laughs> that was in the movie, but well, right. well I
0: own the soundtrack and it's on the soundtrack. Oh, okay. I don't remember when it is in the movie either. It might have been one of those oh, okay. scenes where, like, um, they're they're driving okay. together or something, uh, just on the radio or something. You know what I mean? Hmm, but I own okay. the soundtrack and played it way too many times, so yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, what number was that? Thirteen yeah number thirteen. Oh, so okay. let's stay together, which is interesting because it like implies that people are breaking up, so it's kind of also an interesting choice, but you know whatever, as we finish this up, though, what do you think would be a good first dance song at a wedding, in your opinion?
2: Well, I'm gonna say not at last because that was my wedding song, and I've been divorced for over ten years.
0: oh, okay, okay, so you're saying <laughs> done with that, no more of that
2: um I, I it really has to depend on the couple, I mean that's true. If you like, if I was like, I'm clearly not marrying anyone right now, but I mean, you're all I need to get by by Method Man and Mary J. Blige works for some couples. I, that would be on my list.
0: Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Serena, any choices?
1: Um, I've been watching a lot lately because I have a, a really good friend who's getting married. So we're talking a lot about weddings and the version of I can't help falling in love in Crazy Rich Asians, Ooh. I think is just so beautifully done. And I could yeah. really see that being a good, um, I think in the movie, it was like when she walked down the aisle, but I could also see that being a really good first dance.
0: Yeah, I can see that's great. Yeah. and I And I realized I didn't have a choice when I came into this. But what came into my mind just now is maybe time after time. I really like that song a lot. And I don't know, all the lyrics don't necessarily bode well, perhaps. But like, I think the general spirit of I'll be there for you is good. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, we did not have a first song at um, Lee and Mai's wedding because we got married by a waterfall. Then we went swimming in a very cold uh, mountain uh, pond where I almost uh, fainted and Lee had to prevent me from drowning right away. So that was fun. Fainted from what? Cold? (laughs) The cold. Yeah, it was so cold that it like hit me so hard that I almost like passed out and he had to like pull me up. But it was actually kind of a great way to start a marriage. Um, he literally was saving my life, So there you go. Anyway, I won't wax poetic more about my wedding right now. <laughs> All right, let's um let's get on to the show. So before we get started with today's episode,
1: some useful information. As always, we will have a spoiler free section at the beginning of the episode. But it will be considerably shorter than usual, so please keep your ear out for the spoiler warning we'll give you when our spoiler section begins.
0: We would also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod.
1: And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode.
0: And also be sure to check out Ed's podcast, The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly, at sungpoorly.com where you can hear him and his co-host Adam interview some fascinating people and give you the lowdown on all things karaoke. And I will include a link to the podcast in the show notes so you can check that out. And now let's listen to
1: part of the trailer for My Best Friend's Wedding.
2: Michael and Julianne have been best friends for years.
0: One constant thing in my life is that he'll always be there.
2: But they were never more than that. Call me four in the morning, whatever, we gotta talk. Until he popped the question. I called because I met someone. To someone else. Well. We're getting married. He was in love with me every day for nine years. (laughs) Me? I can see why. Look, she has known him for, what, like five seconds? I can't lose him, George. I'm a busy girl. I've got four days to break up a wedding and steal the bride's feather.
1: Oh, You know know I've never had a sister All I've heard is Julianne this and Julianne
2: that Michael and I were a wrong fit right from the start He said that too George, she's toast The only fear she really has is you
1: So this means that I have four days to make you my new best friend And be my maid
2: of honor What? Why not? You're practically the best man anyway I just asked myself, what would Lucy Ricardo do in this situation? Who's that guy? I told him, George. <laughs> if we're engaged, why be ashamed of it, right? There's something wrong. It's just a big surprise.
0: We thought you were a lesbian. Oh!
2: I know we have to talk about George. You were jealous? Crazy jealous.
1: Personally, I think Mr. Michael's marrying the wrong girl.
0: Just tell him you love him.
1: I, I-, I realize this comes at a very inopportune time. Marry me
2: moment I wake up Before you put on Yeah! Dry Star Pictures presents I'm the bad guy. A story about finding the love of your life Do you really love him? And deciding was oh, is just about winning. What to do about it. I trusted you. Just tell me what. Why did you trust me? No, why did you pretend to be my friend? Julia Roberts Oh! Dermot Moroney and Cameron Diaz love Lovely together.
1: My best friend's wedding.
2: Michael! That's our maid of honor. She's from New York. Oh. My best friend's wedding premiered June 20th, 1997. Directed by PJ Hogan, written by Ronald Bass, and starring Julia Roberts, Dermot Mulroney, Cameron Diaz, and Rupert Everett.
1: So the premise uh, is Julianne hears from her old friend Michael around the time that they'd made a promise to marry each other if they were both single. Rather than calling to propose, Michael is calling to let Julianne know he's getting married in a few days to a younger woman named Kimmy. Julianne becomes convinced that she's in love with Michael and decides she must stop the wedding. Julianne travels to Chicago and things quickly get complicated as Kimmy asks her to be her maid of honor. Meanwhile, Julianne's other best friend, George, attempts to sway Julianne towards honesty and acceptance rather than deceptive tactics.
0: So there's a lot of interesting facts about the movie, but I think we're going to strew a lot of them throughout the episode today rather than putting them up front. But a few things to know. It was shot on location in Chicago in the summer of 1996. It had a budget of 46 million dollars. And then it had a domestic gross of 126 million and a worldwide gross of 298 million. It was the sixth highest domestic gross of any movie in 1997, so for a rom-com that's doing really well. Julia Roberts had a say in the casting and she chose Dermot Mulroney as her leading man particularly. And I've read a couple conflicting sources about Cameron Diaz. So one said that Julia Roberts picked her over Drew Barrymore. Another one said that she wanted Drew Barrymore, but she traded Drew Barrymore away so she could have Dermot Mulroney. So who knows? But in any case, Dermot Mulroney was definitely Julia Roberts' pick. And there's a couple remakes of My Best Friend's Wedding, foreign remakes. There's a 2016 Chinese remake with the same title and the same plot. And there's also a 2019 Mexican remake with the same title and plot, La Boda de Mi Mejor Amigo, which I now want to see both of these movies very much. And I probably won't have any time for a while, but they're on my radar. And a stage musical of the movie featuring the music of Burt Bacharach had been planned to open in the UK and Ireland in 2020 and then 2021, but it has been postponed again due to the pandemic. So... I, I'm, I'm not a huge like going to see musicals based on movies kind of person, so that doesn't really bother me. But it does suck that people put a lot of work into something that hasn't been able to be put up on you know, on a theatrical stage yet. So I hope it works out for them. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the cast and crew. And I'm going to give you a little information about P.J. Hogan, who's the director of this movie. So P.J. Hogan is an Australian director. His first feature was The Humpty Dumpty Man in 1989, and he also co-wrote that. But his breakout movie is pretty special to me. Um, I saw it with my friend Karen Carlson in D.C. We took our first cab to go see it in Georgetown, and it's called Muriel's Wedding, Muriel's Wedding, which we already talked about in the trivia segment. And this was in 1994. He wrote and directed it, and it has a lot in common with My Best Friend's Wedding, and it's also what brought... um, him to the attention of the of the people who are producing this film because it's got a lot of music in the movie this was also the breakout movie for both tony collette and rachel griffiths and if you've never seen muriel's wedding i really recommend watching it it's so fun it's so bizarre it's like it's like watching pj hogan instead of using his talents like he is in this movie to kind of make a mainstream movie a little more interesting it's just when pj hogan's allowed to kind of go wild and make the movie he wants to make so Definitely check that out. My Best Friend's Wedding, though, in 1997 remains his most high-profile project, but he has directed some other well-known movies, including the 2003 version of Peter Pan and Confessions of a Shopaholic in 2009. And some other movies I want to see. um, He worked with Rupert Everett again on a movie called Unconditional Love in 2002, which that's on my list now to watch. And he worked with Tony Collette again on a movie called Mental in 2012, Also on my list now. Final interesting facts about PJ Hogan he's married to another Australian director, Jocelyn Morehouse, and she's directed movies including Proof and How to Make an American Quilt. And his most recent IMDb credit is as a writer and producer on Jocelyn Morehouse's uh, 2015 film, The Dressmaker, which stars Kate Winslet. Then, after that, most recently, Hogan created a musical version of Muriel's Wedding which played in Australia from 2017 to 2019. And yeah, like I said, I want to watch so many movies now after researching this episode. I can't believe I never went back and just like watched PJ Hogan's filmography because based on the two movies of his I've seen, I love his work. So I got some watching ahead of me. Yeah,
1: We previously covered Ronald Bass on episode 10, How Stella Got Her Groove Back. So check out that episode if you want more info on the screenwriter.
2: For the star of the movie, Julia Roberts, her first feature role was as a member of an all-girl band in the 1988 movie Satisfaction. Also in 88, she starred in Mystic Pizza, followed by a role in Steel Magnolias in 1989 1990's Pretty Woman remains one of her biggest roles and one of the top-grossing rom-coms of all time. Other roles before My Best Friend's Wedding included Sleeping with the Enemy, Hook, The Pelican Brief, and Something to Talk About. Some important movies since My Best Friend's Wedding include Notting Hill, Runaway Bride, Erin Brockovich, for which she won an Oscar, America's Sweethearts, Ocean's Eleven and Twelve, Mona Lisa's Smile, Closer, Charlie Wilson's War, Eat, Pray, Love, Larry Crown, and August, Osage County. Currently, she's in a TV series called Gaslit, taking place around the Watergate scandal. And coming up, she has a movie in post-production called Ticket to Paradise with George Clooney. She's filming a movie called Leave the World Behind with Ethan Hawke and Kevin Bacon. And she's in pre-production on a movie called Little Bee.
0: So on a previous episode on The Proposal, Sybil and I were talking about Sandra Bullock as kind of the queen of rom-coms, and Julia Roberts is definitely one of the rivals for that label. Um, Where do you guys think she ranks as a rom-com star? Like, Is she one of your favorites?
2: She's up there for me. I don't think of her as a rom-com star, but her role in this and in Notting Hill, which is one of my all-time favorites... Really keep her up there for me in the list.
0: Yeah, I'm personally a big Pretty Woman fan. When I when it first came out, when I was younger, I had all kinds of things to say about it, like not being feminist and all this stuff. And like, it's weird. Over the years, I've come to embrace Pretty Woman. I don't know what shifted in me. Maybe someday we'll cover it and I can talk about it more. But I think she's so fucking charming in that as well. How about you, Sarita? Like, do you have any feelings on Julia Roberts? I mean yeah, I
1: think she's great. I don't think I necessarily would go out of my way to see a Julia Roberts movie just because she was in it, but she's definitely been in some really great movies. Um I love Closer. God, I love that yeah, movie. Yeah. And and I think she does a great job in it. I do think she's kind of an underrated actress i know she's in a lot of things but i don't think people give her enough credit for um her range Mm -hmm. you know i i do think that she did a great job in steel magnolias too when she was quite young um i just love that movie and i i love her character i think i do prefer more of her serious movies as opposed to her rom-coms but that's just me
0: like, would you put somebody else in the place of queen of rom-coms? We're not going to have a whole discussion about it right now, but like, like, who would you put over her if you were choosing a queen?
1: I, you know, I kind of think that she was like more of like the, one of the OG like rom-com queens. So like, she's like the first person that really comes to mind when I think of rom-coms and I don't know why.
0: Hmm. That's just me.
1: Maybe it is because of this movie
0: so of My you, Best she Friend's is a- Wedding. Yeah, for you, she is a bit of a queen. Then, like for me, yeah. I think I used to automatically think of Meg Ryan, but like Sybil really mm. made me question this when we were talking about Sandra Bullock. So you'll have to listen mm. to that segment we did and see what you yeah. think, whether you agree or not.
2: Meg Ryan would be my go-to.
0: And and is it because of um, just the sort of like the three Nora Ephron movies, or like is there any other reason?
2: It's definitely the Nora Ephron movies. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, absolutely that's my uh, go-to number one top of all time romantic comedy.
0: Yes. All right. Very good. Same as me. I don't actually meet a lot of people who say that anymore. So that's cool. So any final thoughts about Julia Roberts? Like, do you think this is How about this? Do you think this is one of her better movies that she's done? I think it's the one
1: that really like made her solidified her, her celebrity status.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really did make a lot of money. I guess it was her highest grossing movie since pretty woman. So yeah, it probably signaled to Hollywood like, yeah, keep banking on this woman. She's going to bring people into the theater. And also like the stuff she gets away with in this movie is amazing. Like, I don't know how many actresses you could put in that role and people would still be with them in any sense at the Mm. end. Yeah. Fair enough.
1: All right. So uh, the love interest in this movie is played by Dermot Mulroney His first IMDb credit in a TV movie called Sin of Innocence in 1986, but his breakout role was in Young Guns in
0: 1988, which is a great movie. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait! I'm stopping you. So you you, you are a Young Guns fan? I need to know. (laughs) Yes, totally.
1: I mean, I, I, I guess I haven't watched it in a really long time, but I loved it when I was like
0: 12 years old. That's awesome. Okay. Sorry. I had to stop you. (laughs) Did you not? Did you not? I I have never seen it. I'll confess. I've never seen Young Guns. Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: Projects before my best friend's wedding include Longtime Companion, Career Opportunities, Where the Day Takes You, Point of No Return, Living in Oblivion, and Copycat. Projects after my best friend's wedding include Goodbye Lover, The Safety of Objects, About Schmidt, The Wedding Date, The Family Stone, Stoker, And August, Osage County. In recent years, he's been making more TV appearances, including on the shows Enlightened, American Horror Story, Shameless, New Girl, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and The Purge. He's also appeared in the movies The Cow, Uma with Sandra Oh, Agent Game, and The Virgin of Highland Park. He has a lot coming up with six features in post-production, mostly action and horror movies, and he's in pre-production on a comedy called Two Men and a Pig.
0: And I just want to put in here that I really underrated Dermot Mulroney's filmography. Like, I never really thought of him as, like, much of a heavy hitter, but, like, he's been in a ton of indie films, and I've seen a lot of them. And I think, like, I didn't think of him because he actually played the roles very well and blended in, like about Schmidt, for example. Like, I don't associate him with that movie, but he was great in it, so... Yeah, he's actually done a much better job than I realized. So yay Dermot Mulroney. Nobody has any other thoughts on Dermot Mulroney. Okay, we can move on.
2: <laughs> really. None that I can share on this podcast.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my I literally God. forgot how hot he was. Like he's a hot, like distinguished older gentleman now, but I'm like watching this, I'm like, oh. Oh. Oh.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if you find him hot in this movie, you really need to see the wedding date. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah. I have not. Yeah, because I don't really find him hot in this movie. But then I watched The Wedding Date and I'm like, mm, OK, I can see it now. So, yeah, I'll talk about that later because it's in my double feature recommendations. <laughs> OK, so we're going to move on now to kind of for me, the star of this movie, Rupert Everett, who plays George Julianne's gay friend. And Rupert Everett is an openly gay British actor who started in theater and then he moved to British TV. And when I say openly gay, he came out in 1989 when that was like a big deal. So his breakout feature role was playing a gay lead role in the 1984 movie Another Country, which also starred Colin Firth. Other projects he did before my best friend's wedding included Dance with a Stranger, The Comfort of Strangers, Della Morte Della More, which is also known as Cemetery Man. And let me just tell you, it is a bonkers, like weird Italian zombie movie. And I used to own it on VHS. I got rid of it because it's a bad movie, but now I kind of wish I'd saved it. But anyway, it's a really strange movie if you ever get a chance to see it. Ready to Wear is another work he was in before my best friend's wedding and The Madness of King George. And interestingly, okay, so we see um, Rupert Everett sings quite a bit in this movie He actually at one point recorded a pop album in the 80s called Generations of Loneliness. And I listened to the title song and I mean, it was just kind of so-so, but I mean, it was a credible 80s pop song for sure. It did not do well, obviously, because he didn't become a pop star. But he also later sang backing vocals on Madonna's American Pie. And he sang backing vocals on a Robbie Williams cover of They Can't Take That Away From Me. So after my best friend's wedding, like obviously he um, was well known for doing this role, he worked in Shakespeare in Love, An Ideal Husband, A Midsummer Night's Dream, where I believe he played Oberon, The Importance of Being Earnest, and Stage Beauty. He also was the voice of Prince Charming in the Shrek sequels. He appeared in the movies Hysteria and Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, and he's continued to work in TV and theater. And one like really important project people should know about in 2018 he released The Happy Prince which is a biopic of Oscar Wilde's later years and he produced wrote directed and starred in it as Oscar Wilde and I've seen it and it's a very I mean it's a very moving picture but it is pretty depressing at times. Have you guys seen that mm, one? Have not. I I haven't seen it but I I could see how that's
1: would be pretty depressing.
0: Yeah, I really recommend it. It's a really um A really masterful film if you're in the mood for something that won't necessarily uplift you, but we'll we'll give you a little bit of insight into Oscar Wilde. And more recently, he's appeared in The Warrior Queen of John And the TV series The Name of the Rose and Adult Material. He has several projects in post-production, including The Liar and Leadheads. And he's also in pre-production on a movie called Lost and Found in Paris, which he is writing, directing, and acting in. So as I mentioned before, he came out as gay in 1989. And in 2019, he told the Daily Mail that being openly gay had hurt his career. He said, certainly back in the day, it was more or less impossible to be gay if you wanted to aim for the top rank of show business. I did get a certain amount of opportunities. I just never got second ones. So he was asked also about, you know, the opinion. Some people will say that, well, only gay actors should play gay roles because there's this like, dearth of gay roles. And we want to give opportunities to gay actors. And Everett said that he thought it was fine, you know, for straight actors to play gay roles. But what he wanted was the opportunity for gay actors to play straight roles. Then just finishing up with Rupert Everett, he's also, in addition to acting and his attempt at a music career, he has written five books Two of them were novels and three of them were memoirs. Apparently, in his memoirs, he is quite outspoken. One of them caused a rift between him and Madonna. He had been in a film with Madonna and uh, he said some things about her she didn't like. And he's kind of known for being outspoken and causing a little bit of trouble in general. So, very ironically, considering the movie we're talking about today, he uh, gave a critique of gay marriage in an interview with The Guardian in 2012. I wish I could say this in Rupert Everett's voice because it would probably sound better, but he says, I loathe heterosexual weddings. I would never go to a wedding in my life. I loathe the flowers. I loathe the fucking wedding dress, the little bridal tiara. It's grotesque. It's just hideous. The wedding cake, the party, the champagne, the inevitable divorce two years later. It's just a waste of time in the heterosexual world. And in the homosexual world, I find it personally beyond tragic that we want to ape this institution that is so clearly a disaster. So, so Rupert Everett <laughs> will put out what he thinks about things right <laughs> yeah. out there, which doesn't always endear him to people. But I find it very, him very interesting to watch if you've ever watched an interview with him. And I kind of want to read his memoirs now. Yeah. I wonder what his, what are his novels about. I don't know. Yeah, I want to read all his books now. This, like, like I said, this episode is making me want to like explore all of these people's careers so much more. Yeah. So the movie also stars Cameron Diaz, but we are now covering her on this episode. I'm sorry. She's really great in this movie. But for the sake of time, we will cover her later this year. Serena, maybe we will cover the holiday. I know you and Sybil really like that. Cameron Diaz, um, at the time of this movie, though, I will note she hadn't really broken out yet. She'd been in the mask. But this was before there's something about Mary. So guys, we're going to do a really like we're going to do our general opinion now, but we're going to kind of do it in two parts. I think like this is the no spoiler version of your opinion of the movie. And then we're going to do the spoiler section pretty soon after this. So in a no spoiler way, what's your relationship to this movie? Like, when did you see it? How many times have you watched it? Do you like it? Just put it all out there.
2: Watching it for this podcast was my second time watching it. I did watch it when it first came out. I did not like it then. Ooh. I liked it more watching it now.
1: Um, my memories of it are, I mean, it came out when I was in high school. And I remember that <laughs> the girls that I despised in high school loved this movie. <laughs> so even though like, I secretly enjoyed it, there was like a part of me that like, was like, no, this this movie is not for me. 'Cause I, I felt like I was like beyond it. But I do I do like it. I do enjoy it. Um, even as rom coms go, I like that it's a little different.
0: Yeah, I definitely saw this when it came out because I was working in movie theaters and it was um it opened at the same weekend as Batman and Robin, but it was kinda like, you know, that's a movie's terrible, but it was like kind of an alternative to <laughs> Batman and Robin. Just like a it was kind of the sleeper hit of the summer. So we had it around the movie theater for a long time. And I remember just really liking it right off. I don't think I, I was aware that PJ Hogan was connected to it at the time, but I really responded to the the music of it. Like I, I loved that in Muriel's Wedding, and I loved it in my best friend's wedding. I love movies that employ music in some way, not necessarily a musical, but bringing in singing to a movie. And I don't think any of the main stars were like really my favorites, but Rupert Everett, I just responded to him in the movie quite a bit. And at that time, like we talked about with Chase and Amy, it was still not necessarily common to have gay characters in mainstream movies. So that was refreshing to me. And to have him be like such a cool person was even more exciting to me. So I like that a lot. Yeah, I didn't have any problem with being schmaltzy and I was out of high school, thank God. So I didn't have to worry about the, <laughs> the type of girls I imagine you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one one question for you, Serena. Have you seen it since then? Since and it came out
1: had i seen it yes i i have i don't think i never really went out of my way to watch it but i've seen it since it came out and maybe like just like randomly on tv or just kind of like in the background or something yeah
0: yeah me i've seen it a bunch of times since it came out in 1997 but i think that's primarily because i'm a huge rewatcher, and i'll especially of rom-coms they're kind of my comfort food so yeah All right, so we're going to begin our spoiler section very early in this episode just because of the nature of this movie. So, if you want to watch this movie unspoiled, please check back in with us and check the movie out. All right, so a big part of my opinion of this movie is based on the fact that this movie subverts romantic comedy tropes and romantic comedy expectations. So, you're set up right away to assume that the main character Julianne is going to succeed in her mission to like break up her best friend's wedding. Julia Roberts is so charismatic. She's so beautiful. And you just kind of assume that she's going to win when she's the protagonist in the movie. And you also just assume a rom-com protagonist is going to get what they want, even if it seems a little bit ridiculous or improbable. Would you guys agree with that? No, I agree. I completely
1: agree with like everything you said. I think, I think that was the purpose of it, really, is to kind of turn like, the, the rom-com onto its head.
0: Yeah. And there's more like, they do like so much with this too, because you're set up with all the different things that usually happen in a rom-com. Like the moment Julianne and Michael see each other again, they bump into each other at the airport. Like they literally bump into each other and almost kiss. That's the kind of thing you see in all kinds of rom-coms. There's a scene where he sees her like in her underwear and says, she's beautiful. He confesses that he's having doubts about the wedding to her on a boat, like, um, you know, in kind of a romantic scenario they dance on the same boat to like their song that he's singing to her. So it's like all this stuff that in a usual rom-com, you'd just be sitting there and being like, get together, kiss. Yes, you belong together. And in this movie, it's kind of seeded with this dark side, but I think it's possible that people could have still been watching it and wanting these two characters together. What do you guys think? I do
1: think that Julia Roberts and Dermot Mulroney have so much chemistry that It's almost like you can, it makes sense for them to get together, you know, like you, they, they just seem so good together and so comfortable and so natural and they're both so good looking, you know, like all of the things. But I I think the great part about this movie is that that's not the point of the movie Mm. necessarily, you know, that attraction or chemistry doesn't always win out in the end, you know?
0: Yes, exactly. Like everything seems like it's pointing to them ending up together or that they would be good together in some way. But it's kind of acting like a reality check, I think, you know, to the idea that if you feel something must be right, that it's going to work out, you know, or that you can make a grand gesture and things are going to be okay. Like so many romantic comedies are kind of selling this idea that like, go with what's in your heart and you will win. And like, I mean, from my own experience, I know that that's not true. (laughs) Like sometimes you'll meet like the right person and you'll have like true love and like everything will work out despite the odds. But a whole lot of times that's not true and it can lead to really toxic behavior, people pursuing people longer than they should be, you know, people making other people relatively uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think this movie is in some ways almost like a corrective to kind of the excesses of the rom-com genre.
1: Yeah, the kind of like um, the unnecessary prolonged like pursuit of someone sometimes isn't always like realistic or <laughs> it can't, sometimes I do watch rom-coms and I do feel uncomfortable with like some of the scheming and plotting and things that are going on behind the scenes and you're kind of like feel icky about it you know and I think that this this movie kind of shows that as well mm-hmm. um just how like gross some of that can be
0: yeah yeah and it's sort of an exaggerated version I'm trying to think if there's another romantic comedy where things worked out well where somebody was as underhanded as Julia Roberts' character is in this movie.
1: I think it's more normalized when it's the male that mm. is that is the, the pursuer. Because I think we kind of excuse it away as being, like, male behavior, you know, to kind of have that rivalry between men. Yeah, or to,
0: like, do deceptive things. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... I was on force five podcast re- recently and I haven't seen there's something about Marion forever, but it was one of like his picks. And he said that there is devious behavior in that, but I can't remember exactly. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you're right. There definitely is. I mean, it's done in a very comedic way, but yeah, okay. there's there. It is definitely. Yeah. That's a good example of what I was saying about how, yeah, it's, it seems more normalized when men will go in these directions
0: Okay, so do you think it do you think it could have been a satisfying movie if Julianne had somehow gotten Michael in the end of this movie?
2: I don't really think so. I think that had they gotten together at the end of this movie, it would have been a letdown and it wouldn't have been as good of a movie as it is.
0: Yeah, I think we would have forgotten the movie. I think it might have been it might have, you know, had a little success, we would have seen it, we would have forgotten it.
1: I think the standout of this is that it isn't it isn't the normal plot of a rom
0: com. So let's go ahead and we'll talk about this opening sequence. So we have a lot of instances of music in this movie, including the opening credit sequence, which is to the song Wishing and Hoping, which is kind of a little bit of a retro, uh, let's see, 1964 song written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David and first sung by Dusty Springfield. And it's, it's kind of like wishing and hoping and thinking and praying, planning and dreaming each night of his charms that won't get you into his arms. And then it's basically saying that just, you know, thinking about love isn't going to work for you. The the later lyrics are things like you should like um, wear your hair just for him. Do the things that he likes to do. Say you care just for him. Like this is the advice this song is giving you. Like in 1964, I don't think that was intended ironically, but I could be wrong. I don't know if either of you knows anything about the history of the song and whether this was like a straight up like...
2: Well, the like... irony is that Dusty Springfield was gay.
0: Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Maybe it was ironic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it ended up being ironic.
2: Yeah, From mid-1966 to the early 1970s, Springfield lived in a domestic partnership with fellow singer Norma Tanega.
0: Wow. I did not know. So yeah, this, this song, I mean, it could have been just the song that her producer suggested to her and like was as like a straight up like love song, but perhaps she was singing it ironically if nothing else. Hmm. And then of course the singer in this version, it's a cover version is Ani DeFranco. Which, which I and, did not know. Oh no, no, No! I didn't know. Well, anyone who knows anything about Ani DeFranco knows that this is like uh, definitely ironic once you make a- Ani DeFranco the singer of the song because she's known for her feminism. She was asked why she chose to appear on the soundtrack, and DeFranco told the LA Times, I guess the irony appealed to my sixth sense of humor. It's important for all of us to be able to poke fun at ourselves. So she was also initially asked to play the bride in the opening sequence, but the timing didn't work out for that. So instead, we've got this like very like blonde-bobbed haircut girl and her bridesmaids and like they're all wearing kind of like 1960s clothes on like a pink background like that would have been a very different um opening sequence if annie defranco had been in it i think (laughs) yes (laughs) i mean were they putting her in a blonde wig or she's just going to show up as annie defranco i don't know yeah i guess we'll never know (sighs) yeah instead the bride in that sequence ends up looking quite a bit like kimmy in my opinion um Mm -hmm. the girl that michael's marrying what do you guys think
1: yeah i thought that was kind of the point of it like, you're supposed to, like, the opening sequence, like, you're supposed to almost get this, like, icky feeling, like, ugh, gross.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if PJ Hogan just really likes that song, and so he was having fun and just being a little campy with it or something. Or if, or if you are sort of sp- supposed to, like, if, if it's supposed to be some kind of dark commentary on the Michael and Kimmy's wedding, I'm kind of torn between those. Maybe it's both. I'm torn between those ideas. All right. So we're going to move on. We're going to move into the movie now that we're done with the opening sequence. We are introduced to Julianne in what seems like a totally unnecessary segment to me. Like it starts out, you think it's going to be like one of those kitchen cooking movies, like because you start in a kitchen and people are all worried they have to make the best food for this like important person. And we find out the important person is Julianne, who is a food critic and apparently has recently written a book and she was on a book tour and apparently also doesn't answer her calls on her enormously gigantic cell phone. And over dinner with um, her friend George, we find out about her best friend Michael. She describes them as having had one hot month in college, after which she broke up with him. But then at one point, they promised to marry each other if they weren't married by 28. And can we just pause for a minute and talk about the idea that if you're not married by 28, you should make a pact with someone to get married? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i do remember watching it at the time being like dang that seems young
0: yeah i mean i was married once before 28 but i wouldn't necessarily advise it because it didn't work out <laughs> so yeah
2: i mean like you I- hear you hear about these packs all the time and where it kind of killed my suspension of disbelief and i did not bother to look up anything is i just had trouble reading both dermot moroni and julia roberts as being 28 in this
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Julia Roberts is 30. So she's at least close. I don't know how old Dermot Mulroney is. But I get it. Yeah, because they're just
1: like, so successful. Like, wow. Mm. I don't know. And maybe that's just me because I there's no way that I was like, could have been capable of writing a book before 28. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I just it just seems like, um, I don't know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, she's definitely successful. She's like this like feared critic, which usually a feared critic, I would think of somebody older. Dermot Mulroney, I think his career position is a little bit more believable because he even says he has a low paying zero respect job at one point. So his amount of success I buy. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Julianne's success is a little more, um, yeah, Yeah. makes her seem a bit older. Yeah. Is that what you were getting at, Ed? Was it the career or just the way they look, basically?
2: A A mix of both. A mix of both. And Dermot, I I looked it up. He is a little bit older than her. Okay. But maybe it's because like in my head, people that are in their mid to late 20s are kids now, and they didn't look like kids. So I don't know.
0: So we also meet George, who is her editor and her best friend in her current life, played by Rupert Everett. They're at dinner together. They're at this dinner together, and she's telling him about Michael. So... George has heard about her marriage pact with Michael and noticing that Michael has just called her and that she's about to turn 28. He puts the idea in her head that maybe Michael is calling to fulfill that pact. So she goes back home. She calls up Michael. And it seems like she's all set to reject him proposing to her. Is that the impression you guys got?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she's like preparing her words to be like, oh, sorry, but we're not really going to get married with this wedding pact. Um, Sorry that you want me so much kind of thing. (laughs) And instead, though, we find out that Michael has, in fact, met someone. And as soon as he says he's met someone, she gets all jealous, I noticed. After that, Michael then says that the girl he's met is all wrong for me. We find out she's a junior at the University of Chicago, which, by the way, is a really hard college to get into. So Kimmy has to be pretty smart. Um she's 20 years old and her family is rich and Michael doesn't really like hanging around rich people. And when Julianne finds out that he's getting married, she falls off the bed in that kind of rom-com clumsy, you know, pratfall kind of way. And she's shocked and immediately she is very upset. So right away that I feel this like this scene speaks to Julianne's sort of motives. Would you would you agree? Yeah.
1: We're already seeing that she's kind of a bitch
0: (laughs) oh so you think of her so you think she's a bitch already yeah it's 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 kind of showing that
1: yeah i mean it's just showing that that at first she she wanted she wanted to reject him and then when she finds out that he has found someone she's upset
0: yeah, I mean, but being upset doesn't necessarily like make you a bitch. Like, But I feel like it's that's kind of natural. I just think it, it qu- makes me question like whether she feels genuine love for him, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Do either of you find this relatable, like this kind of relationship with someone where you like their flattery and attraction, but you would reject them. But then if they're with someone else and they don't care about you anymore, you're like, oh, but but come on, I used to have that. Do you guys find that relatable at all? Have you ever experienced that?
2: I've certainly witnessed it. I've never felt it myself. I've never been in the Julianne role in that, but I've I've seen that in Dynamics.
0: Yeah, I do remember being in college and I think a couple of boyfriends or sort of casual things I had in college where I dated them, I ended up finding out that like, we weren't really compatible, but then I would get jealous when they would move on to someone else. And so I do find Julianne's jealousy relatable. Um, I just don't find it relatable to do what she does about that feeling. You know what I mean? So Julianne decides she's going to go to Chicago. I mean, Michael has asked her to go to Chicago to participate in the wedding. But Julianne is going with a different motive, which is to break up the wedding and steal the bride's fella, as she tells George. And right here is one of those places where it's set up like a rom-com. Like you see her in a air- crowded airport hallway. The crowd sort of part. And there's Michael. And they see each other and there are these big smiles. There's this kind of like rom com kind of romantic song playing. Although I think it's called You Don't Know Me, I think is the, is the name of the song. It
2: is. And it's Jan Arden covering it, speaking of women singers from the 90s.
0: Oh, I don't know that singer. Any more you want to say about that? or
2: uh, The song's most well-known by, I believe, Ray Charles's version of it. But Jan mm-hmm. Arden, you would probably remember from Insensitive, I think was her big hit.
0: It sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, it's an interesting choice of a song because it sounds romantic, but I don't think the lyrics all support romance, if I recall. It,
2: I mean, it's very on the nose for this movie in terms of the lyrics. Like, the, whole, the whole point of it is, you know, I'm happy to see you and I'm sad as I watch, watch you walk away with someone else.
0: Oh, yeah, that works on a very nice subconscious level. Yeah. And then so when we Michael and Julianne bump into each other, literally, they have that almost kiss kind of a thing happen. But then immediately that is energy is dissipated when Kimmy is introduced. And so Kimmy's played by Cameron Diaz, as we said. Throughout the whole movie, I don't think I ever see her not in a dress. She's in a dress like the whole movie. And the dress she's wearing here is like yellow kind of shift dress. It looks very 1960s, like continuing with the wishing and hoping opening credits it looks very 1960s her hair is like in a little headband perfectly done she's got a string of pearls like just you're like sort of perfect classic conservatively dressed girl and she has even, even has like a little scarf tied around her neck it's just like it's all very retro and I, I'm sure that's purposeful because Julianne's appearing like either in like kind of suit jackets or she's wearing like crop tops I think the costume design was really good on this film mm-hmm and other things we find out about Kimmy very quickly is she's very friendly, um, like very effusive. She, she says to Julianne, I've never had a sister, which granted as effusive as I am, that would bother me. If a girl I never met said, I never had a sister to me, it would just be like, whoa, too much. <laughs> I mean, yeah,
1: I would think that, but I think right away you're, it shows the different women, like how different they are. And yeah, this, the scene of them meeting is, is pretty obvious.
0: And like, I was kind of predisposed to dislike Kimmy, I think, like right, cause like the, the way she's dressed, that, that sort of coding is kind of conservative, like especially in the Mm nineties. It just struck me as like, oh, she's, I wouldn't want to hang out with her. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then, and then it really was exacerbated by her fast driving. Cause there's a couple scenes in the movie, like the next scene, they're driving away from the airport. There's another scene where she's driving crazily, where she's just driving way too fast. At one point, she almost runs some people over. It's almost like, exaggeratedly unnecessarily but um yeah like it, it really that's a pet peeve for me like lee lee called it a moral failing when we were watching it so she's not totally perfect she has this one fall, flaw that she's a fast driver <laughs> okay but recall recall um my mother though like my mom died like when i was like 20 and caused partly by a speeding driver so it's kind of like i've never been a fast and the furious fan you know like i've never like gotten into any of that stuff because it's like yeah, I mean, it can cause death. So I'm just like, mm, so what were th- I don't know what do you think they were
1: trying to say with with giving that like be her being a fast driver as
0: part of her character? I don't know. Do you guys have any idea?
2: I think it just highlights the difference between Julia Roberts's character and hers. you know, New York being not really a driving city or, you know, being a driver, being young, being carefree, and being somewhat reckless. And I think we're actually seeing that more through Jules's eyes than we are maybe seeing what's accurate.
0: So you feel like um, maybe almost in a weird way, we're seeing Jules's perception of her driving rather than we're supposed to see that she's actually driving like Absolutely.
2: Think about how many reaction shots to her driving that you see on Julia Roberts's face.
0: Hmm. Interesting. The New York thing is important too. And also I guess you could see it as a metaphor for how they move in relationships too. Mm, like mm-hmm. the, the recklessness, the fast, you know, Kimmy is a fast mover. This wedding has come up very quickly. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Ed, you've illuminated the situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All I was doing was sitting there be like, you can't drive that fast. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would just get out of your car immediately and run away. Anyway, so Kimmy at this point also asks while she's driving very quickly asks Julianne to be her bridesmaid her in fact her maid of honor and yeah like what is your impression of the main characters when you're first introduced to them like do you immediately have an affinity for any of them?
1: I think at the time I was probably more against like when it first came out like against characters like Kimmy because yeah you know the conservative preppy like perfect girl I I always kind of railed against that. But over the years, I've actually become very good friends with, with women that would fall more into that category. And they're actually like, wonderful genuine people and i realized that like i'm the asshole that i had like pre <laughs> prejudged them just because of you know their more conservative views or their more conservative I-, I guess in comparison to me um life or their you know what i perceive as being an easier life you know like they had grown up with more money or had more privilege x y and z instead of just like looking at them as a person so i think i've grown as a person where i don't i don't judge right away um, In real life scenarios. Yeah. So,
0: Oh, yeah.
2: At this point in the movie, the only characters I really liked were Michael and George.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So neither the women. You're just like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like more about Kimmy and Julianne, like in terms of like what types of women there are, we find more about them um, at a dress fitting. And Kimmy's describing Julianne to herself via what she heard from Michael. She says, you hate weddings. You never go. You're not up for anything conventional or anything that's assumed to be a female priority, including marriage or romance or even, and Julianne completes the thought, love. And then Kimmy describes herself. Well, I thought I was like you and proud to be till I met rumpled, smelly old Michael. Then I found out I was just a sentimental schmuck, like all those flighty nitwits I'd always pitied. So it's kind of like Julianne is set up to be this woman who is pushing away love, is against it, and Kimmy's set up to be like, I thought I was like that, but now I've seen the light. Which, given her wardrobe in this movie, okay, the last time I watched it just now, I felt like Kimmy was a Stepford Wife. I hate to say, <laughs> like, if you've watched the Stepford Wives, mm-hmm. like, the women who have been turned into a Stepford Wife look very much like <laughs> Kimmy. And, and they did, in fact, used to be more independent and have their own life until like they were changed over so i know that sounds terrible but like i almost wonder if they're playing with that a little bit because i cannot imagine the kimmy we see in this movie as an architecture major at the university of chicago like is she wearing those little dresses to class yeah why not like yeah i i I I could see
1: that i mean i i never i never uh discredited like that part of it um with with kimmy
0: i mean i'm not discrediting that like you know Kimmy could be smart. Okay. Mm -hmm. But just like the way she's being portrayed and dressed in the movie and the way she like, and the other important thing we learned about Kimmy is that she is in fact dropping out of her senior year of college to follow Michael around on his like sports writing job. It's like, it's like one more year of college you could go to and finish your degree and you're not doing it. So for me, that seemed really weird. And it makes me sad when I watch the movie, Mm -hmm. it makes it hard for me to buy into Kimmy and Michael's relationship that like, You would take the dreams of a twenty-year-old, the career of a twenty-year-old, and like throw that aside. If I were Michael, I wouldn't let Kimmy do that. Is what I'm saying. I I would not be okay with that. I'd be like, let's wait to get married for a year. Mm -hmm. Let's be long distance. Like, let's have your dreams. So the character of Kimmy is really uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I believe in love, and I believe in doing stuff to be with the person you love. But like, I, I, you know, I draw the line at kind of like sacrificing something else that is core to you. Mm Do you see what I'm I saying? I can very much
2: see that. Now, that said, the scene is also where I start to like Kimmy, though, because this is the mm-hmm. point where she stops being a stock character. Mm-hmm. Whereas, for the majority of this movie, I feel Jules is a stock character. It takes mm-hmm. Jules a lot longer to get depth and growth than it does for Kimmy. We we start to see that Kimmy is more than just that bubbly person that we met in the airport during mm-hmm. the scene.
1: I agree in, in a lot of this Kimmy
0: comes across as being a lot more genuine yeah I definitely see that she's genuine I definitely see that but like I I feel I feel like Kimmy's my shadow in some ways mm. I think that's maybe why I had another resistance to her because mm. at at 20 at 19 there were a lot of things that I would change about myself or to be with a guy mm. I would really you know Try to adapt myself to the guy's lifestyle. I, I missed out on fantastic trips I could have taken with my college to go to Cuba, to go to India because I wanted to spend time with my boyfriend. You mm. know, in Wisconsin, like mm-hmm. I did things because I loved love, but I wasn't thinking about like my life and my priorities as mm-hmm. much. So I feel like in a way, Kimmy is representing to me parts of myself oh. that are not necessarily optimal for being a fully realized human. You know, it's always a tricky balance with love, but like. I'm uncomfortable with Kimmy's trajectory here. Like as a 20 year old leaving college right before you're going to graduate. But you, but you feel her like, do you feel like like she's genuine, but do you feel like this is a good choice? Oh for her? no, it's I a terrible
2: choice. It's a terrible choice.
0: So, so one final thing about Kimmy though, that I relate to is that we find out from Michael that Julianne and Kimmy are very different um, in terms of affection. So, he's talking to Julianne about the difference between the two women. And he says, Kimmy lets me hold her as long as I want. Like she's okay with public displays of affection. In fact, she's very enthusiastic about them. And Julianne apparently would pull away when he tried to hug her in public. And so I really relate to Kimmy's character on that level. Like I'm definitely more of a Kimmy that way, but I still like, I, I still just feel sad for her like at different points in this movie. And I think when I was younger, That sadness for her was kind of more directed as like disdain for her because like that was a part of me that I didn't want to acknowledge, a part of me that I would give things up for guys that I shouldn't. So I think we sometimes have a tendency to do that, to see other people's weaknesses that are the same as ours and kind of dislike them for it. But I think I I see that about myself more clearly now.
2: This is the point where I got sad for Jules because in her sudden jealousy, she's willing to change who she is. Mm for this guy. She's like, I I can do that now.
0: Can she though? And would she?
2: (laughs) She would just be setting herself up for disaster.
0: Yeah, I I feel like Jules wants to think that she can change for Michael, but like I don't see any evidence that much evidence that she is capable of being a totally different person. And like, God, when I think about like, what is her plan for if they got married? Like she's a food critic in New York and she's going to be married to a sports writer who travels around the entire country. How's, how's that going to work? Exactly. Like Jules Jules wants to change, but like, she's not following Michael around the country. I mean, do you think she would ever even try? Probably not.
2: I guess it depends if she switches to, to a national publication.
0: Yeah. I suppose so. Although then they'd probably be sent to totally different places too, though. I mean, yeah, Yeah. it just, it's like, it seems like these are lives that would not fit together particularly naturally. And I just don't see that she'd be capable of changing the way Kimmy does. Do you think that her willingness to change is an example that maybe she is actually kind of in love with Michael, like beyond just being jealous?
1: I think there is a part of her that is in love with Michael. I do. I think those feelings are legitimate. Like I don't, I don't think she's lying when she says how much she loves him. I just think that she doesn't – she didn't realize that he could be taken away from her.
0: Yeah. That's all. Yeah, I think the latter for me. Like, I think those are slightly different things because, like, I think when anybody's, like, best friend or someone close to them gets married or gets a partner and you're used to spending time with that person, like, and being a priority to them and now they've got this other person that's a priority, there can be, like, jealousy there. Um, and maybe you don't really want to be in that situation with that person, but you don't want your situation to end. I feel like it's more of that than it is of like, I actually want to be married to Michael. Okay. So let's move on to George. Like is George your guys' favorite character too, or is it just me?
2: No, no, he's, he's the best only good character in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's, he is the moral compass, which is actually great. If you think about it for the nineties, the gay best friend being the moral compass, Yeah. And he's just so damn charming.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's incredibly handsome, um, charismatic, witty. Like, I love they have these repeated scenes where Julianne's like desperate and going nuts. And like she calls George on the phone and like he's always doing something like amazing, like having this like really elegant dinner party with like these intellectual looking people or like a book book reading where everybody's looking very sophisticated. And there's Julianne on the other side, like a total mess. I love the contrast. I wish they'd done even another scene of that. And yeah, he's the moral compass, like he gives her advice, like he gives her advice that if she had followed, I think there's some chance Julian might have succeeded in breaking up the wedding if she had just immediately or maybe not immediately, but maybe on that boat, just cop to what she's feeling. I think there's maybe a chance she could have broken up the wedding.
2: I think there's a chance, but it would still be really scummy.
0: Mm. Oh, you st- so you still think it would be scummy? Like Yeah. All right, all
2: right. Like, now I, I will say this now because we are in the spoiler section but I have no faith in Michael and Kimmy's marriage lasting <laughs> yeah. at the oh. same time no no faith whatsoever but at the same time she had her chance and she blew it okay and she should accept that
0: on one hand um okay on one hand yeah I can I can agree with that on the other hand like she had her chance like in terms of like years ago but like I do think it's possible that like if you find out somebody's attached to someone else, you could have a sudden realization about how you really feel. And there isn't really much lead up to this wedding. There isn't really much time for her to tell him because she hasn't, you know, she just missed his messages or whatever. I feel like if she were really truly in love with him and she sensed that he was really truly in love with her and, and obviously, like you said, Kimmy and Michael aren't necessarily a great fit. Then I don't think it's scummy to tell how you feel. Actually, I don't think it's ever scummy to tell how you feel as long as you do it the way George suggested. Like I know this is a terrible time, but I just have to tell you how I feel. And then I'll accept accept the results of what happens then.
2: That I agree with. Okay. But I I don't think there's any way that she would do it in that sense.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like, if she had done it George's way, like, would it be okay? Like, and I feel like if she'd done it George's way, it would be morally okay to do that. And it might have been successful for her. I don't know if she would have wanted the car after she caught it, but (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) But yeah. She probably would have ended up breaking Michael's heart if she had gotten what she wanted. So yeah, George played by Rupert Everett. I feel like he kind of steals this movie. And if I get really ambitious, I'm going to put out a blog entry um, declaring him my first addition to the rom-com character hall of fame, because honestly, I cannot think of another supporting character in a romantic comedy that has as much impact as him, that steals a movie as thoroughly, and just is really kind of an awesome guy like that you'd want to know. Okay, so, yeah, but, like, I wanted to talk, though, too, then about the theme of gay best friends in rom-coms, because it's kind of, like, a, a interesting topic. Like, there are positives to it, I definitely think, and then there are negatives to this kind of gay best friend trope. Like, when you think of the gay best friend trope, do you guys generally have, like, first a positive reaction or a negative reaction?
1: Positive, I guess.
2: Cautiously Positive. I think one of the reasons they set that up is because while both the gay best friend and the female lead find men attractive, they are very rarely going after the same person Mm. so that there's no competition, which takes that element out of the friendship.
0: Yeah. It can also just be a substitute, too, for, like, there's often in rom-coms, there's just a female best friend, but, like, for whatever reason, she's not a threat to the main love story. Like... Either she's interested in different type of men or she's taken like, or in some cases yeah. they make her sort of like quote unquote unattractive, which in movies of course just means normal looking. <laughs> like, um, Yeah. So I feel like the gay best friend is kind of like the modern sort of twist on the f- main character's best friend character. I don't know. I see it. I see Yeah. It. I mean, I get, I get it being like
1: the unthreatening sort of, cause there's also like the, the other best friend is like either they're unattractive or they're like the the sassy black girlfriend character as well I see a lot in mm. in movies. So yeah. I think it's like they're trying to make it more diverse. Because usually like let's face it, like most rom coms are straight, white, skinny women that are beautiful you know what i mean so you don't really go go outside of that too much but i think in order to make it a little bit more diverse is that they'll throw in like a gay friend or they'll throw in like a black friend or some other ethnicity or something like that so i I think that's kind of how this started
0: yeah and you're kind of getting at what the criticism of this role is then too like the criticism is that this character does end up being kind of like a token they end up being like a person you know, kind of without a life of their own. Yeah, I I was reading an article on a site called 34st.com, which is supposed to be like 34thstreet.com. And it was critiquing the trope. It said, time and again, GBFs, which is short for gay best friends, are assigned roles in which they dole out advice and witty comments to a typically straight female protagonist and then fade into the background until the next time their support or help is called for. They hardly ever discuss their own personal lives, The romantic interests and sexual exploits of a gay character could distract from the main romance or perhaps even upset the audience. Their role is shallow, a prop for the protagonist to use at will. So yeah, pretty harsh criticism. And in a lot of ways, you can see that I think you can see some of this reflected in what the way George is used in the movie. Now, my question, though, is like, is this because George is a gay character or is this just because This is kind of always the way it's been for the best friend character in a rom-com, whether they're Judy Greer, you know, another straight white woman, whether they're the sassy black friend trope or whether they're the gay best friend. Like, To what extent is it a function of the narrative and to what extent is this tokenizing people?
1: Well, I guess part of it, it makes me wonder, so how common is it in real life for do most heterosexual straight women have a gay best friend?
0: I mean is I would that, say many many do but like I just like okay do you th- yeah so you're saying that the realism of it you know makes it I mean is that where it came
1: from is this is this like a real a real scenario is that what a lot of times like what straight women will use a gay best friend as hmm. sort of this okay you know for dialogue and for, you
0: know, bouncing ideas off of as kind of an agony aunt. So you're saying like, is this reflecting a reality in the lives of straight women and gay best friends where they're kind of tokenizing their own friend, basically?
1: Right. Right. Hmm. I mean, I guess it could go both ways as well. It's just, we don't see that in movies. You know, I mean, I, I have some gay best friends and like I end up being their agony aunt a lot of times. So it's like, it could go both ways. It's just like, I've just never seen a movie where that was
0: depicted. Yeah. Where <laughs> where there's the token straight basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So a little bit, I'm going to also give a little bit about the history then the background of the gay best friend. So I didn't even know about this movie but there's an early example there's a character called Buddy played by Charles Grodin in the 1984 movie The Woman in Red and I think in this one he is the best friend actually to the guy in the movie and Entertainment Weekly called it a normalizing depiction of a gay man who is simply one of the guys so I think that one was generally viewed as a positive especially in 1984 you were still not seeing a lot of gay characters in mainstream mainstream films and then some other gay best friends that have been in rom-coms include, but are definitely not limited to, Oliver in Crazy Rich Asians, Damien and Mean Girls, Hollywood in Mannequin, Christian in Clueless, Brandon in Easy A, and Stanford and later Anthony on Sex and the City.
1: It's interesting how you don't really see, I was trying to think of movies that had like a lesbian best friend, mm. like maybe to the guy. And you don't really like see that. I, I was really trying to like rack my brain.
0: I know I have seen one, but I don't know what it is. And I think I've even yeah. seen one where there's a lesbian best friend to the girl too, but I don't, I can't think about it. Yeah. It's interesting. The gay best friend is a trope. The lesbian best friend, not so much. Is is that. If, the- any, if anything, they
1: always like, allude that the lesbian best friend is like in love with the, mm. <laughs> their straight friend. And that's usually some sort of like subplot, you know?
0: And is this because of the stereotypes that people will often have about gay men, like that they're interested in fashion or something, which goes along so well with a rom-com, you know, like Oliver and Crazy Rich Asians does the makeover, you know, like, Mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. perhaps because of these stereotypes? I don't know. Anyway, an interesting movie that comments on this trope is called GBF from 2013. I actually ended up watching it before this uh, podcast and- I think I'd seen it before, actually. And it's kind of a fun little movie. It's basically uh, focuses on these two gay friends and their other friend group. And all of a sudden, when one of them comes out, he becomes like kind of this sought after accessory to the popular girls at school. And they're all kind of like fighting over him because they really want a gay best friend because it's like the new trend or something like that. And it's just very satirical. Natasha Leone shows up in it at one point. So there's some like a little bit of star power there. I kind of recommend it. It really just kind of like decimates the trope and even alludes also to the sassy black friend trope at one point as well. So I thought that was pretty fun, kind of interesting movie, not a rom-com, just a comedy. Just like some final thoughts about this. Like, I think that overall George's character in this movie is is a net positive. So the advocate said that often the gay best friend can be an important first step in introducing queer storylines to mainstream audiences. And I think that is a lot of what Rupert Everett's character in this movie was. It was kind of like, look at this awesome gay guy. Like, don't you wanna like see him in more movies? Don't you wanna see characters like him in more movies? Wouldn't you like to watch a movie about a gay character? It's kind of a way of like introducing mainstream audiences to gay people are just like you. In fact, they might even be cooler than you. Why don't you, you know, accept them on your screens? But then the advocate goes on to say, The GBF trope had a tendency to reinforce stereotypes about gay men, that their only interests are makeovers, shopping, and drama, that their struggles and relationships fade into the background unless they're supporting a straight person's story, and that they only exist to be wise oracles about love and romance. And I don't really see how you can escape seeing George also being put into that box a little bit. I mean, I don't think he's totally stereotypical, like he's not like trying to be her fashion advisor, but he is being kind of a wise oracle, you know, for better or for worse. And we don't, we never meet his partner. I didn't even realize he had a partner until the last time I rewatched it. He has a partner named Werner, apparently. They're going to the Hamptons. He was probably late for their thing in the Hamptons. <laughs> yeah. So my, I guess my hope is that like, we can see more and more. And what I still don't think we're seeing is I still don't think we're seeing enough I don't think we're seeing enough gay mainstream movies just like hit it big. And it's a pity. They're coming. I think they're coming. I mean, we had Moonlight a few years ago with won the Oscar, which was fantastic. So I think that's a step in the right direction anyway. Moving on, we're going to get back to the storyline. Julianne is on the phone with George and she's in her underwear after a dress fitting and suddenly Michael busts in and it's very inappropriate in this scene. Like, He's alluding to the fact that he's seen her more naked before when she tries to put clothes over herself. And then as he leaves, he says, you look really good without your clothes on. I mean, does this seem like appropriate behavior for someone who's about to get married? I don't know.
2: I think it's a very uncomfortable way to set up the possibility that Jules wins in the end.
0: Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. And, And yeah, and you're like, oh, he does like her. Yeah.
1: And I I don't think they ever deny that. I don't think they ever deny that there's like attraction between them or any of those things. And I guess that stuff just doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily go away, even if he is getting married.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I just, it made me not like Michael as much, I guess. Or it made me like, I think in this movie, we're meant to see Julian as the primary like villain, but it made me think like Michael is kind of, you know, leading her on a little bit there or planting a seed there and not necessarily being true to Kimmy at that point. And, and My
2: thought is there are no heroes here, only protagonists.
0: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I like that. Um, but this, like his reaction to her naked or not naked in her underwear is what inspires her to plot against Kimmy actively. She says to George, George, she's toast. So her first phase of the plot is is pretty uh, kind of harmless still. She's just trying to look appealing and trying to be appealing and tell Michael that she's changed and she can do the love stuff and showing up at this baseball game where he's there with all these dudes that he works with in her little like midriff top and like holding all the beers and giving guys beers and like basically strutting around. I mean, you know, okay. Maybe it's not nice of her to do that, but she's not really breaking any rules there. Second phase of the plot, though, we go into Ed's area of expertise. Julian finds out that Kimmy cannot sing at all, can't sing a note, and she knows that Michael likes karaoke. She invites Kimmy and Michael to this karaoke bar, pretends that she didn't know it was a karaoke bar. And then, honestly, I have no idea how she finagles it so Kimmy's singing, because like, normally you go to a karaoke bar that crowded, you're waiting an hour to sing. What do you think about that, Ed?
2: It had to be a setup because the host comes right over and talks to Kimmy directly. That doesn't just happen.
0: Yeah. Like she bribed somebody. She called ahead something. Yeah. So Julianne sets it up for Kimmy to sing. And we're going to listen to a little bit of Kimmy's vocal stylings right here. And then I'm definitely going to want to hear Ed's commentary about this scene.
1: Just what to do
0: As we can see, everybody in the end of the scene is with Kimmy, then. So, yeah. So, Ed, as a karaoke regular, like, what do you make of this scene? Like, what do you think it teaches us about karaoke or says
2: about? Well, it? one, I've never seen a bar that packed and that big before in all of my travels. Uh, so, I want to go to that bar, but <laughs> I'm bothered by the person who shouts, You suck at the beginning. Yes. I feel like that's like I would have thrown them out of the bar. Me as a patron, I probably would have caused some trouble. But, I l- love that she commits to it and, and keeps going and wins the crowd over. I mean, there's nothing sadder to me than when somebody gets up and like gives up a, a little way through, cause it's not going as well as they thought that it would. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the moment I fall in love with Kimmy. I'm like, wow, she committed to that. She had fun with it. Like, yeah, no, at this point I'm rooting for Kimmy and not Jules.
0: Yeah. And do you think, um so like from your experience and going to a lot of bars, do you think it's kind of realistic, like how the scene goes for her then? Like how, maybe at first the audience is a little cold and then they really warm up to her or do you think they'd be warm the whole way or?
2: No, I mean, I've seen that happen. I've seen it where it's been warm the whole way and I've seen where people like warm up throughout. Yeah. I just think it's very endearing that she really gives it her all, even if that's all her all is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like I've never actually heard anyone shout, you suck. And I've seen some really bad karaoke performances, (laughs) even drunk people. I've never seen any, like people who are clearly too drunk to be singing and like yelling into the microphone. I've never seen anyone actually say, you suck. I have seen a KJ take a microphone away if they were actually damaging the equipment, but that's about it. Would you say that's about what you've seen?
2: Yeah. And I think it's a really odd song choice for the context. Oh, yeah. yeah. like they put her in for a breakup song or she chose a breakup song. They never really establish who picked that song, but that's kind of foul play. If, if Jules picked the song for her,
0: well, this is another dusty Springfield song that's in the movie. So wishing and hoping and this are both dusty Springfield. So I think it's more of like a PJ Hogan likes these songs, but it's also kind of interesting because it's like very Kimmy to me. Like, there's a moment in the movie where she thinks she and Michael are breaking up and she's like, I'll just die. Like I'll just, she's crying. She's hysterical. She's like, I'll just die if we break up. And I'm like, I could see Kimmy at 20, this 20 year old who's like really poured herself into this man being that character in that song, if they were to break up. So I think for me, that's where it's coming from. Either PJ Hogan loves Dusty Springfield. It's a commentary on Kimmy's kind of love or both. Okay. So I just also wanted to ask like, Ed, like what's would be the worst song or can you imagine like, what would be the worst song somebody could pick for you at karaoke? And do you think you would, I think you would power through it. I think I already know the answer to that, I've, but what do you yeah,
2: think? I've literally, pa- I've powered through so many things before. I don't really think there is a worst song because there's nothing I won't do in a karaoke <laughs> bar. Uh, if I want to sound good, it can't be like the Bee Gees, but I'd still go through a Bee Gees song. I, I just can't sing high, but
0: what would you I'd do probably then?
2: Just, I'd probably just try to sing it where I could. Yeah. I don't, I can't do falsetto. I don't understand it. I I I'm physically incapable. But like, there's not there's not a song that I I won't try to power through. Again, I sing songs I've never heard before at karaoke. Yeah. Sometimes I literally just did that this past weekend because some girl who was there is like, "Oh, it's your birthday. I'll sing whatever song you want." And she picked a Miley Cyrus song I had never heard of. I'm like, "All right, I'll do that." Yeah, see that it wasn't good, but I did it.
0: That's where I would have trouble. Like, I think you could put any song in there and I would try my best. But if there's a song where like I don't even know the melody. Like I'd be like, okay, or the rhythm. I'd be like, okay, I'm out, guys. Like, I don't want to subject anyone to this. So I'm just like dropping the mic on that one. <laughs> but other than that, I think I would sing anything. Serena, do you have any things that you think if somebody gave you at karaoke would just like would be the worst thing or and would you power through? Would you try?
1: I mean, I feel like any song would be the worst song. I have a <laughs> terrible singing voice. So I mean, whatever anyone, I would be like, I can't do this.
0: So what would you do, though, if you were put in Kimmy's situation? Do you think you'd put down the mic and like no shame putting down or do you would you try to sing it?
1: I don't know. That's a good question.
0: Do you relate to her character because of like your shared non-singing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. For sure.
0: Yeah. And apparently Cameron Diaz actually related to the situation, too, because she was originally told that she was going to be lip syncing this section. Okay. And then Uh PJ Hogan decided it would be better for the movie if he just had surprised Cameron Diaz and had her sing the song live with karaoke monitors, just like she was really doing karaoke. And that way he would capture some real embarrassment. And and that's what he did. He changed it at the last minute. Her embarrassment was real. She said in interviews, I wanted to run and hide, but Dermot kept me there. And she was really legitimately feeling emotions about this. And I guess she can sing to some extent now. She was in the musical, the remake of the musical Annie playing Mrs. Hannigan, but she did a lot of training for that. And she said to people that like her, her voice is actually probably naturally much closer to her character of Kimmy than to like being able to do musicals. She might have been just being modest there though. So yeah, I, this scene does make you root for Kimmy too. Like I agree with you, Ed. Like I, I had respect for her just doing her best, putting on her game face, trying her hardest. So I liked her in this scene. Any other karaoke thoughts? I'm sorry. I don't know what bar it was or if it was a real bar. Probably not. I think.
2: I'm just, I'm sad that we didn't get to hear uh, Dermot Mulroney do anything in that scene.
0: Oh yeah. Mm, Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. We just hear that random guy singing. I am woman, which I'm like, is he doing it ironically for fun? I don't know. I, I, I don't really like the song. I am woman in karaoke. It never really does much for me, but. Okay, so we now get into the third phase of Julianne's evil plot. She wants to get Kimmy to piss off Michael by having her father offer him a job via Kimmy. And we know this is something that would piss off Michael because Julianne talked to him about it. And like, you know, haven't you thought that like maybe her father, maybe her father would offer you a job? Maybe Kimmy would like you to work for him, and he doesn't want to sell out. He considers it selling out. And for me, the section of the movie where Kimmy approaches Michael with this job makes Michael so distasteful to me that I don't like him for the rest of the movie. I take it you guys didn't have that reaction. Uh,
2: No, not really. Actually, I kind of did. Okay. He acted poorly during that scene. She acted poorly during that scene. And the thing that boggles my mind is how do you guys not realize that she is setting this up, that, that Jules is setting this up? (laughs) Yeah. Like, how are you not picking up on this? What is wrong with you?
0: I can see how Michael might not realize it, but like for, for, yeah, for Kimmy not to get it at that point, I don't know. She's just, she's kind of a guileless person, I guess. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. like they're, they're at this nice dinner, like they're having a nice lunch together or something. in this nice restaurant. And when Kimmy presents this job offer, his reaction is just like so angry. He's like kind of his voice is kind of raising. And even when Julian, like his best friend, supposedly like encourages him to kind of consider the offer, he's still angry. And he gets angry at Kimmy. And for a moment, she asserts herself. She says, what? All of a sudden I'm supposed to drop out of school, forget my family, forget my career, forget about all the things I had planned for my life. And when she stands up for herself he gets even more angry at her and he's almost yelling at her in this fancy restaurant. And then she starts crying. He's still mad at her and he's still not really softening. He's about to leave. He says, fine, I'm the asshole. I'm an insensitive, sexist asshole. And, and like when he said that in the movie, this time when I watched, I'm like, yeah, you are. <laughs> I'm just like, don't like, let him go, Kimmy. But um, as he starts to leave, after he says that, Kimmy just breaks down crying. She's just like, seems like she's just losing it. And she completely and utterly, like totally surrenders the idea. She says, you're so right. You have to forgive me and forget this ever happened, or I'll just die. And she's saying this through tears. And I just felt so bad for her then. I'm like, she's 20. Like, I mean, at that age, like, it's just so easy to kind of like fall in love and forget yourself. And like, here's this 28 year old guy, like letting her, and it just made me sad. So this
2: now yeah. n- now see, here's where I start to like Kimmy less because that's classic manipulator behavior. What's that? That's that's abusive, saying you can't or I'll just die. Like, no, like don't.
0: I mean, I don't think she meant it literally. If she was saying I'm going to kill myself, yeah. I think that would be a little different. But like I, I I didn't take it as like she was actually making a threat. I think she was just expressing how sad she was and didn't know I have any other words for it. But but you but you just take that as like, oh, she's manipulating yeah, I feel like they're both manipulating each other to some extent though. Yeah. I will agree with I, that.
2: Again, the only good person in this entire movie is George.
0: <laughs> Serena, are you still with are you still okay with Michael here? Like are you how do you feel about it? Yeah,
1: I don't I don't know. I don't mind it. I do I, I understand like where he's coming from cuz he's already like kind of on the fence mm. about this whole thing cuz this this wedding, this whole thing seems very rushed, right? Yeah. Like it seems like this is a very new relationship and I I do think that throughout this whole thing like he's on the fence. And I think things are like coming up. I don't think that they've really explored this relationship as much as one should before getting married. Oh, yeah. So I think it's just bringing up a lot of emotions, you know, for them. Yeah. Um and and he's just really unsure. I don't I don't necessarily think that he's in the wrong here um by getting upset and i mm-hmm. I don't really see t- i don't see him getting like overly aggressive like i don't he's angry but like that's a legit emotion like it's not
0: yeah just for the setting i think the contrast with the setting they're in kind of because yeah.
1: they're at a restaurant yeah
0: and like he's quite loud compared to the volume of anyway that's how it struck me oh Oh, okay. I also think there's a little bit of what Dan Savage called the campsite rule at play here, where if you date somebody younger, you're supposed to like kind of leave them in better condition than you found them. Or that really applies to breakups. But I think it's just also applies to like if you're the older person in a relationship. And whereas I don't think eight years is necessarily a huge age gap, but at 28 and 20, you're at very different points in your life. And I feel like Michael could have had more consideration for watching out for her best interests in that situation. I mean, granted, she's from this wealthy family. It's not like she's going to starve. Right. But like just watching out for the person you love, like their ambitions and their, their personhood. So yeah, that's all. Okay. So now Julianne calls George in and George comes to see her and he encourages her to just tell Michael the truth. And for a moment, you know, Maybe it'll all work out. But what happens instead is, in the middle of trying to tell Michael the truth, he gives her the ring to hold on to, and she chickens out. And we find out that she has told Michael that George is her fiancé, and she's roped George into her fake fiancé scheme. (laughs) While this leads to some of the most hilarious things in the movie, um, I feel bad for George. Can you guys see going along like George does and pretending to be the fiancé?
1: I mean, I think he just does it almost to, like, teach... Jules a lesson you know yeah. like oh yeah i'm gonna go along with this sure
2: <laughs> and, and pointedly does it in the most obnoxious way possible
1: yeah, yeah.
0: speaking yeah. of which i have a clip of um, him behaving obnoxiously that i can play really quick um and this is when george comes to the rehearsal i think and meets some of kimmy's family there so i'll play that real fast Underplay.
2: Got it. Hey, I'm Jules' fiance, George. <laughs> just in time for a quick pre-conjugal visit, if you catch my drift. I do. <laughs> You're
0: going to humiliate me, aren't you? If I can. Hey, just one thing. Stay away from. What? George! Oh
2: my God! I don't know why I was so carried away. <laughs> <laughs> Against God's plan? No! Oh, no!
1: It's just wonderful! It's wonderful! Oh, <laughs> no! Mom! <laughs> <No. laughs> <No. laughs>
0: no. You have to meet George. George. You must be Kimi's little sister. Oh. Julie <laughs> say they're going to be married no yes <gasps> what's going on oh, what? julian's getting married oh why didn't you tell me? us oh, really been time. i again. wanted to Love i it. wanted to shout it from the rooftops really? but jules said no pumpkin no this is kimmy's day let's not take the attention away from kimmy oh. Oh,
2: dear <laughs> sweet
0: adorable chocolate covered kimmy those were her very words Hi.
2: Me too, mm-hmm. George. This is so sweet of you to come to our rehearsal. I insist you stay on to lunch. Oh yes! No, 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 no! Absolutely. Love
1: to. <sighs> love the bag. Love the shoes. Love everything. Love to.
2: Thank you. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry. I love him so much in this scene when he says against God's plan. It was really hard not to laugh. <laughs> yeah, love George. Anyway. Uh yeah, so this is the beginning of this, and then of course he stays on to their rehearsal dinner, which is held at that seafood restaurant, as you mentioned, Serena with the lobster claws. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even notice the lobster claws I I... until this rewatch. But they...
1: oh, really? Because like the whole when I'm like, what are they supposed to be? Like I was watching it, and I was like, so they can't be like servers. Are they just like mascots? Like, in, <laughs> in, randomly in the restaurant wearing these like lobster yeah. claws? Yeah. I don't.
0: Are they operating some kind of seafood grill? I don't know. It's all a big mystery. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, some people don't like this scene. I think it was Sybil who said she hates this scene. For me, this is my, my favorite scene in the entire movie. It's the Say a Little Prayer sing along scene. And what brings this sing along about is that George tells a fake story of how he and Julianne met. And it is like the most hilariously gay. Meeting story that you could tell about falling in love with a straight woman, like like you said, there's a Rock Hudson reference in it, so basically he says that he went to a mental institution to visit someone who thought they were Dion Warwick and saw like her coming out of visiting some other person, and he said to her his friend, Dion, who is this vision? Qu'est-ce que c'est said vision surely she must be the understudy to some fabulous Broadway star, and then he says. I knew that someday we would end up like this, like some glittering Doris Day Rock Hudson extravaganza. And that is just so pointed to put in the Rock Hudson part, like a, a gay man who was forced to hide his sexuality to play straight men in his career. I mean, obviously that's why that's there.
2: I'm just shocked that Sybil hated this part because this is clearly the the best part of the movie. <laughs> this is just my favorite. It's so charming, it breaks out into a very long musical break, and Everybody gets involved and it's just so cute and charming.
0: Yeah, it really is. And like, I don't think the song Say a Little Prayer was on my radar much before I saw this movie, but now I just love this song and I associate it with this movie now. And you're right. Everyone participates. There's the older man who breaks out into this really great bass part. Everyone in the restaurant is singing at a certain point. One of those lobster guys starts playing on the piano and it becomes a whole restaurant sing along. And like you notice, though, the only two people in the restaurant who aren't jazzed about this are julianne and michael so, so to some people that might indicate they're perfect for each other to me that indicates both of these are people who need other people to lighten them up potentially what do you guys think
2: i never thought about it. i mean the thing was i felt like she was embarrassed by the show george was putting on mm-hmm. and michael was showing his jealousy
0: okay that's true too that's yeah. also possible that, that's you might what be right actually. from it yeah but um yeah it's a great song number serena do you like the song number like where do you stand on it yeah I, yeah I
1: mean it, it was well done that's for sure because it is it's really funny in a lot of ways like what's going on in the background like all the other people in the restaurant are really funny and it's its just really lighthearted. And and I think that's I think that's where the contrast is it's like it is very light hearted but then you do see Michael and Jules and they are like frowny faced so it's like they're almost they are more of these like darker mm-hmm. characters amongst this like lighthearted, yeah. fun, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm also really glad Rupert Everett got to show off his vocal chops in this. So yeah, it's him mm-hmm. singing. So mm-hmm. he's really good at it. Mm-hmm. So the scene itself was not in the original script either. It was not Ronald Bass's idea. It, in fact, he was kind of opposed to it. It was PJ Hogan's idea. PJ Hogan right there. That's what he does in movies. And um, this is a quote from Scott Meslow's book, um, From Hollywood with Love from an interview he did with Ronald Bass. Ronald Bass was talking to PJ Hogan and says, I said, you realize, don't you, this is a six minute scene where they're just fucking singing a song. And then PJ Hogan said to him, apparently, he said, yeah, I wish it was 10. <laughs> and I think it's a perfect length, but I would have also sat around for 10 minutes. Uh, singing along. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so as you pointed out, um, Ed, Michael's starting to feel jealous. Um, Julianne shows George off to the airport, says that she's not really engaged to George, building lie upon lie, and she was just letting him save face. And Michael says, I was jealous when George showed up and wants to hang around with Julianne alone. And they're on a boat, and we get to hear some of Michael's thoughts on the wedding, their relationship, et cetera. I think it's one of probably in my opinion, the most moving scenes in the movie and one of the only scenes where I really kind of like Michael and Julian together. So here it is. I've been thinking a lot the last couple of days. About us, I mean.
2: Have you? Well, there are a lot of memories to choose from, I guess. It's more than that. I mean, it's it's kind of embarrassing to say it this way, but... You've sort of been, you know, the woman in my life. You've been the man in mine. And I was thinking this could be our last time alone. Together, you know. Except for that hot affair we'll have twice a year. Except for that. I mean you commit to this wedding and then And then it seems like this momentum and and then you forget you chose it. You and I didn't I mean in our relationships with other people We didn't use the word love a lot, did we? Jimmy says if you love someone, you say it. You say it right then, out loud. Otherwise, the moment just passes you by. Passes you by.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I really love that moment where he says the moment passes you by because they're passing under a bridge into the dark. There's this moment where you, they could kiss. They're looking at each other like that and they don't kiss. They don't say anything. It literally passes them by. I think it's one of the most beautiful combinations of script and visual I've seen in a romantic comedy.
1: It is a nice scene. I think this is the part, I, I mean, I know they don't like allude to it all. And she so she talks about, Jules talks talks about in the beginning of the movie that her and Michael had one month of a hot affair or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, when they're talking like this, it seems like there was so much more than just, like, best friends for all these years. Like, do you think that they were, like, getting together and, like, hooking up, like, over the years? Because that was the impression that I started mm-hmm. to get. Because I mean, this was more and even when he said like, you were like the woman in my life, like, I feel like they were in some sort of like, almost kind of like an open relationship, but definitely like a friends with benefits over the years kind of thing.
2: I could see that. I, I, I didn't pick up on that while watching it. But that makes a lot of sense.
0: So, yeah, like, after this moment passes them by. Um, Michael's also saying he's having sort of doubts about the wedding. They don't even have a song. Him and Kimmy don't even have a song. And and apparently him and Jules do. And it's The Way You Look Tonight, which he starts singing to her and asks her to dance with him. And so he's like singing to her this romantic song, their song, dancing on this boat. Quite romantic. Um, what do you guys think about that part?
2: I have to look into this director more because the more I hear about him, there's no way that that song was not chosen for the for this reason. Uh, it was written by Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kern. It first premiered in the Astaire Rogers movie, Swing Time, which is about a guy getting cold feet about his marriage, going off to uh, earn a fortune to get a chance to get her back, and then falling in love with someone else.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So you think PJ Hogan is just making deliberate connections here, basically?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's my core belief on this movie now. I think we talked about it uh, in advance of this and I was like, ooh, yes. No, I'm sure. I'm sure of this. PJ, if you're listening, let us know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Feedback at everyromcom.com. I would love to talk to PJ Hogan. Do you guys, um, at this point, did you want them at all to get together? Like, I think this is the closest I came to wanting them to get together for the whole movie.
1: Yeah, but like you said, you know, it it would have just ruined everything if they had, you know, like, I don't know there is sort of this like, wonderful melancholy about this scene, Mm. you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And neither of them are the type who can bust through that to to bust through that um, awkwardness or fear to get to the moment not passing mm-hmm. them by or maybe just michael doesn't want to be with julia julian too i think we're supposed to think that maybe he wants to kiss her too under that bridge but maybe he just doesn't want to but clearly she does not have it in her to use that mm-hmm. moment and not let it pass her by mm-hmm. and kimmy kimmy will not let those moments pass her by mm-hmm. which yeah 100 team kimmy here on that Okay, so, and about the song, like having a song, do you guys think it's important to have a song with a significant other? Have you had songs with your significant others?
2: I don't think it's important because not everybody is that musically inclined, but I've had songs with significant others.
0: Serena, how about you? Yeah, I don't
1: really, yeah, I'm not really like have a song kind of person.
0: Okay, nah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's not really my thing. I have songs that remind me of people or I think of them when I hear them, but I don't think it's like a mutual like, oh, this is ours.
0: Yeah, I think even I have a song with Lee, but I think to a certain extent, it might be more like a song that I chose to represent us and he went along with it. I mean, he likes the song, but I think he went along with it because he's not like a I'm going to pick a song kind of a guy. So we have um, Mm -hmm. such great heights from the postal service because I bought that CD like the week we got together, was playing it all the time. And like the lyrics of that song reminded me of our relationship because we fell in love very suddenly, very intensely. And a lot of people around us were like, what are you doing? (laughs) And we were kind of so it's like they will see us waving from such great heights. Come down now. They'll say. So I kind of related it to everyone else kind of wanted us to come down from the high and we were just like up there having a great time. So that's kind of why it became our song. And it still kind of is. If I play it, he knows why I'm playing it. But yeah, Lee's not really the kind of person that feels it necessary to choose a song either. Although he is quite romantic and will make me like little mixes and stuff like that from time to time. So yeah, I don't think it's necessary for people to have a song either. Like like Ed said, if you're not musically inclined, it doesn't even make much sense. But it seems to be important to Michael on some level. Okay, so moving on from this scene, we get to Julianne's final sabotage. She does not have the courage to tell Michael that she's in love with him or to kiss him at this point. But she does have somehow the nerve to go to Kimmy's dad's office and write an email to Michael's boss asking Michael's boss to fire him so he will come work for Kimmy's dad. Like, I cannot in a million years imagine having the nerve or the desire to do that.
2: Yeah, I I absolutely disliked her in this moment. That was just so extra.
0: Yeah, and it's like, is this her usual personality? Is she this cutthroat in general? Or are we just supposed to feel like she's been driven to this by love? I don't know. Or by what she thinks is love.
2: I mean, she's not even just only impacting Kimmy and Michael. She's impacting Kimmy and her dad. She's Mm -hmm. impacting, like, there's so many things at play that it's a very selfish action.
0: Yeah, Michael and his job, his career. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, kind of everything. And, like, honestly, like, how, even if this succeeded in breaking them up, wouldn't the truth come out eventually? Or some suspicion Mm -hmm. of the truth? Mm -hmm. I mean... Mm -hmm. And also, like, at this point, she's also lied about George having been engaged to her. So if she ever did get together with Michael, she has left such a trail of lies behind her. I don't know how she would ever recover from all of them. Mm -hmm. But she's not thinking very clearly, apparently. (laughs) So Michael, like, the email, I guess. Oh, my God. And Lee was laughing so hard at this computer and the email set up. I was, too, when I noticed it. It's so ancient. Um, There was something where, like. (laughs) she was typing this email on this like really old screen. And like, then it was like a, do you want to save this or send it now? And like, she decides to save it. And then there's this convoluted thing where the guy tells his secretary to send out all the emails. Like, I guess later she was just going to like show Michael this email. I'm not even sure what her move was there.
1: Yeah. I think that's what she was going to somehow lure Michael into that office and show him the email without sending it.
0: Yeah, it's so
1: that Michael would get that impression without actually doing the deed. Yeah,
0: it's really weird, convoluted scheme. Anyway, that email does get sent. Michael gets a fax from his boss about this email, letting him know that he shouldn't get married to this person because this is the kind of situation he's dealing with. And Michael decides he's going to confront everybody at a pre-wedding brunch the next day. So we, we go to the pre wedding brunch and we get like kind of the normal wedding stuff that you see, like you get the fancy decorations, the balloons, the flowers, the big food displays that you usually see in a wedding movie, but it's really all just the backdrop because what's going on now is, um, Julian's kind of running it as a go-between between Michael and Kimmy and trying to sort out the situation and what both of them want to know is the other person. Okay. They're both asking about each other and are they okay, even though they're breaking up. And that was the moment to me where I'm like, okay, these people really do love each other. Like, I don't think it's necessarily healthy for them, but they love each other. Like they're in this moment, they're in this moment of like interpersonal stress, but their first concern is actually for the other person.
1: Yeah. Like what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And so now Julian's the go between between them. And like, they're both saying they want to get married, but in this last ditch move now, Julian confesses to Michael that she loves him and she kisses him. And Kimmy sees this and Michael sees her seeing it and running away. And so Michael begins chasing her. And well, first, do you guys have thoughts about this confession before we go to the next scene?
1: Again, it's, it's just really showing like how, how unhinged jules is like what is going through your head like what i mean i guess i can understand in some ways i guess i have been in some situations where i just felt like a word vomit you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like i don't care what the consequences are i'm just gonna say what i need to say you know so i kind of understand that it's almost like she's built herself up to this point and there was like no no alternative for her really yeah, Because it's like all of her actions were so heinous. It's like she had to like come to this climax, you know, um, even though I think she knew as well that it was over at this point.
0: Yeah, at least part of her brain did. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I understand confessing your feelings. I just like would have done it sooner. Like,
1: Yeah. <laughs> a <little> sooner. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like, yeah. And yeah, I guess she spoke now or forever held her peace. There you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so Kimmy sees her kiss Michael she runs off Michael runs after Kimmy and now Julianne chases Michael and we've got this like tropey rom-com chase scene where like Julia Roberts is like driving a bread truck going after like their cars and the best moment what makes this chasing work at all is that Julianne gets on the phone with George and he says Michael's chasing Kimmy you're chasing Michael who's chasing you no one got it That is one of the best lines in the movie, in my opinion. Like, does this scene work for you guys? Or are you just, you could have lived without it?
2: No, you need this scene because that line from George is exactly what's needed in the moment.
0: Remarkably, that line from George was not originally in this scene. They just had a chase scene and she didn't call George. Like, can you believe that?
2: (laughs) No, no. Because I don't think it gets through her head until he says that.
0: Yeah. And she's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... She finds uh, Michael at the train station. Julianne realizes that, you know, she's fucked up. She's lost. She confesses everything she's done, including sending the email to the boss. And then she basically says that she's pawn scum and he agrees, but he forgives her very quickly. Mm -hmm. I guess that speaks to their history or it speaks to the movie needing to come to an end. (laughs) And she tells him she's going to help him find Kimmy and somehow she's the one who finds kimmy first and this is where kimmy actually gets her moment to like stand up for herself
1: so yeah this is the part where at the end jules figures out that kimmy is at i it's it's like her father's stadium right is that is that what it was alluded to in the beginning yeah i think um, so someone someone had spotted her a security guard had spotted her going into the bathroom so jules starts calling out to her And yeah, then Kimmy basically just gives it to to Jules. And it's the one time when Kimmy isn't so sickeningly sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a whole crowd of women there and they're all cheering Kimmy on. And, you know, what are some of the things that she says? Like, you're a a big haired, two bit
0: food critic. critic." (laughs) An insult, apparently. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, how dare you? come into my life and i made you a bridesmaid and you try to steal my husband the day before i was gonna get married
0: yeah on the one hand i don't love scenes where women are having like these fights like with each other on the other hand kimmy needed a scene where she stood up for herself for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then also the the scene ends with julianne does she does she actually apologize or does she just say one one or the other well, she she makes some kind of apology, a gestured apology. She says, You've won. He loves you. I'm going to get you to the wedding. Kimmy remarkably forgives her. I think that speaks to Kimmy's, like, just really loving character. Like, do you think that that, like, is believable?
2: I think it's believable with the way she's portrayed. I think it's kind of amazing. I don't think I, in the same position, would have been as quick to re embrace Jules. Yeah. If I were Kimmy.
0: Yeah. I mean, I see also that it creates, like, a sense of harmony if she forgives her and, like, that's her, you know, future husband's best friend. But, like, yeah, that would be a lot to deal with, um, finding that all out at once. So we move on to the wedding. The wedding's kind of, like, as opposed to a lot of rom-coms, the wedding isn't, like, a super big part of the movie. We do see the bridesmaid's entrance. We do see a little look between you know, Julianne and Michael, where they're kind of like saying goodbye to each other in a way, I guess. And like they get married and we go, we move very quickly onto the reception and at the reception, Julianne gives like a gracious toast, like saying she dreamt that a psychopath was trying to break up their marriage, but then she woke up and was happy because her best friend had found the best woman. And she says that she hasn't gotten them a gift, but instead she's going to give them Michael and hers old song, the way you look tonight. And they do their first dance then to the way you look tonight. Michael and Kimmy leave, Michael stops to say goodbye to Julianne before leaving. And then we see Julianne kind of alone at a table just kind of looking dejected. And anything you want to say about this before we play a clip of um what happens next?
1: I do kind of like the part where she's like waiting where he does come back and say goodbye to her. I don't know. There's just something very, like, significant about that. Yeah. Which was sort of nice. It was like a letting go moment or something.
0: Yeah, but him letting her know, like, you'll still be in my life. Like. Yeah.
1: Like, you're still important.
0: Yeah. Okay. So now we come to one of, I think, the best endings in any romantic comedy ever. Julianne gets a call from George, which we will play right now. And then we'll talk about it. (laughs) I can just picture you there sitting alone at your table in your lavender gown Did I tell you my gown was lavender? Hair swept up, Mm -hmm. haven't touched your cake Mm -hmm. Probably drumming your fingernails on the white linen tablecloth What you do when you're really feeling down? I was even looking at those nails thinking God, I should have stopped in all my evil plotting to have that manicure But it's too late now
2: George, I didn't tell you my dress was lavender
0: Suddenly, a familiar song then you're off your chair in one exquisite movement Wondering, searching Sniffing the wind like a dappled deer Has God heard your little prayer? Will Cinderella dance again? And then, suddenly, the crowds part And there he is Sleek, stylish, radiant with charisma. Bizarrely, he's on the telephone. But then, so are you. And he comes towards you. The moves of a jungle cat. And although you quite correctly sense that he is like most devastatingly handsome single men of his age are, you think, what the hell? Life goes on. Maybe there won't be marriage. Maybe there won't be sex. But by God, there'll be dancing. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> even without seeing it that scene gives me satisfaction and when you do see it you get to see them dancing together and um, Rupert Everett's facial expressions add so much to the character too I just love this ending uh, I, I love Rupert Everett's performance I love George I wish I had a friend like him yeah
2: the thing I love about it is it's a happy ending and it goes into how important platonic love can be but she doesn't leave with a romance and I don't think she should in this movie.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I do I do like that it ended on kind of a, a lighter note i do think it's pretty amazing that she has this friend that like flew out from new york like twice in the same week like just to cheer her up
0: yeah yeah like wow
1: that's amazing but you know maybe he had frequent flyer miles or something. he knows (laughs) um yeah I, i do i do really like this scene it's um i think i do have some friends that not necessarily would fly out to see me two times but would definitely like come see me in like a time of need so obviously this was a a hard blow for jules
0: yeah and maybe he likes weddings too i don't know maybe he likes dancing i don't know (laughs) Pretty good party anyway but yeah Yeah, a a lot of it is a lot of it is just being that trope though of the person who like they revolve around the protagonist and like i think that's true of a lot of the straight best friends in these movies too but yeah yeah still just like i love yeah i love this ending it's to me, it's one of the happiest endings in rom-coms, even though it's not a happy ending. Like some people have learned lessons and you have this awesome friend who's there for you and you get to dance. Like, come on. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So apparently, though, the movie originally had a very different ending and I saw it too. There's, a, I, I'm putting in the show notes a link to the video, which will hopefully still be available so you can see how bad it is too. Originally they had Julianne meeting a new love interest at the wedding played by John Corbett. Okay. You know, from my big fat Greek wedding and sex in the city. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's just so stale and cliched. And also like apparently test audiences hated it because they felt like Julianne needed to be punished, not rewarded. And it really made them turn on her as a character. But like at the same time, the studio didn't want Julia Roberts to have like a totally down ending. So they decided to bring back George because he was really popular with the test audiences. And in bringing back George at the end, they also ended up beefing up his character throughout the entire movie. So this might be one of the instances in the histories of movies where test audiences have really contributed quite a bit to the movie getting better. Yeah, like I can't, if it had had the other ending, I just, we wouldn't be talking about it on the show right now, I don't think.
1: Yeah, it would have just gotten lost in rom-com oblivion. Yeah. Yeah, so you can watch it? Is that what you were saying? You can. Yeah. They actually filmed they, that alternate they ending? They filmed
0: it and they showed it to test audiences. Uh-huh. It wasn't the alternate ending then. It was the ending then. Oh, and, oh, and also wow. at the end of the alternate ending, they have a whole thing where the people in the kitchen are singing, say, a little prayer too, which oh. <laughs> it didn't really work either, unfortunately. Oh. Um, yeah. Anyway, you, if you if you're curious, you can watch it um, and you can see how much yeah. better the movie got when you added more Rupert Everett in and when you added like not having this cliched, stupid ending where this random guy just decides he wants to dance with Julian. Let's see. We've already talked about this a little bit, but like um, I just wanted to throw out the provocative question to you guys. So we're going to go over the three main characters and I wanted you to say on a scale of one to 10, how much do they suck? OK, and why? So, Michael, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much does he suck? 10 being the suckiest. Six. Serena? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with, like, 5. Oh, okay, okay. I think I'm going to go with... I was, I was leaning more towards 8 before, but I think I'm going to go with 7, because you guys have softened me towards him a little bit. Yeah, like, I understand a little bit more about him now, I think. But, um, yeah, it's mostly for me because of just not really thinking about Kimmy's future. And the way he reacts to her when she has concerns about her future—that's what's a red flag for me. What it what causes your ratings? I'm pretty neutral when it comes to like, I don't I don't think
1: necessarily he's good or bad. It's just I just think that he's just kind of like a typical guy, you know. Like a, a lot of men don't really think about their girlfriends or wives' careers, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of times, men's careers do take precedence in in relationships and especially in marriages. Mm. Like that's just our reality and that was probably the a huge reality in 1997. So it's like can you really knock you know someone for just being a product of their society? I don't.
0: Okay. Okay. I respect that defense. All right.
2: He just seems a little bit worse than average to me. I mean, he's a bad communicator. So is Kimmy. So is Jules. <laughs> uh they, they all everybody needs some therapy. But Yeah. I mean, he's not like egregiously bad. He's just a little worse than normal. Everybody sucks to some extent. So six is not like as harsh as it sounds coming from me.
0: Okay. All right. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. We'll go with Julianne now. Scale of one to 10. How much does Julianne suck?
2: Eight.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll say seven.
0: I'm going with eight now. I think I was closer to you before, Serena, but like, The more I think about just the the indefensibility of some of the shit she's done in this movie, the more I'm like, I mean, I felt sorry for her before because I could understand being afraid to share your feelings, but like that doesn't justify doing unethical things to other people, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: She's definitely a pathological liar.
0: (laughs) I mean, characters in movies tend to be, unfortunately. I think there's way too many movies that rely on lying and ruses for their plots Mm. to advance, you know? Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, and finally, Kimmy. Three. I
1: say four.
0: I'm I'm going with four too, but I wonder if I should be more forgiving. Um, she's young, and she's behaving like a young woman often does. Um, yeah, I'll i I'm go back to three because she's so nice too, and she is kind of genuine and she is honest. So yeah, I'm I'll, I'm I'm swayed. I'll go back to three. I've talked myself into it. So what what is unsucky or sucky about Kimmy then?
2: She's very genuine. She clearly has problems communicating and advocating for herself as well, but she doesn't do anything egregious in the entire movie.
1: I mean, I agree with that. I, I, I think I just put her in those numbers. I, may, I put her closer to Michael in being like the same sort of level of suckiness. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. And then I want to know, what do you think would be in the future for Michael and Kimmy? Do you think they would have worked as a couple? In the future.
2: I give it five years.
0: All right. What's going to happen in five years? Maybe eight.
2: They they don't have, I don't think that they're a good long-term match. They they want different things out of life. I feel they don't really like tell you that and that, but that's just my gut feeling on those two.
0: Yeah. And who do you think leaves who first?
2: I think she leaves him.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think,
2: I don't think Michael ever grows up in what she would consider To be growing up.
0: So you think like that part of her is hoping that like he's going to change after they're married and he's going to like stop wanting to do this particular job and like things are going to change and
2: settle down and 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 grow roots somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I here's what I, I predict. I predict that they that kids are involved that they definitely have kids and then that's when Kimmy's mind starts to change. That's what I think will end up happening.
0: So do you think they're going to have kids even while he's on the road doing this job? Like,
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think they'll have kids because I mean, what else is she going to be doing? Like she's going to, that's going to be like the, the next thing like, Oh, well, you know, I didn't go to, I didn't finish college. I don't have a career. So, you know, I'll, I'll have some kids. But then when she does have kids, that's when she realizes that she kind of wants a different life, a different partner.
0: Yeah. And I think she's going to get a longing to go back to school. So I have kind of a different version of it. I think The initial honeymoon phase is going to fade out a little bit and she's going to look around and be like, where's my life? And then she's going to remember how much fun she had in school, want to go back. And maybe she'll maybe they'll do long distance for a little bit. But I think eventually she's going to change because people do change a lot in their 20s. Okay, so for double feature recommendations, um, my first double feature recommendation, I've talked about it a lot during the podcast already, is PJ Hogan's breakup feature, Muriel's Wedding from 1994. If you like this movie, I think you will also like Muriel's Wedding. It also um, plays around with with the idea of weddings and shows kind of darker sides of romance. It's not a rom-com. It's more of a friend comedy. Um, Muriel is a character who's obsessed with ABBA and obsessed with getting married. And she thinks that if she gets married, her life will be better. But the movie ends up being more oriented around the friendship she develops with a girl she meets in, I think it's Sydney played by Rachel Griffiths and their relationship that they build together. And Muriel has to kind of come face to face with kind of her idealism of weddings and just the idea that she can escape, you know, herself and her life in an easy way. Really very interesting movie. Lots of music in it. Lots of ABBA music. I guess if you don't like ABBA, you might not like this movie, but if you like ABBA, you will love this movie. So That's my first recommendation.
1: I also love Muriel's Wedding. I love that movie. Um, My pick, I picked There's Something About Mary, which came out in 1998, which was right after My Best Friend's Wedding. And it it stars Cameron Diaz, plays the main female character. She plays Mary. I I just chose this movie because it it had Cameron Diaz in it again. And I think this has kind of solidified her again as like a, hard hitter at least at this time um in movies in the late in the late 90s because she was everywhere
0: yeah i think this is considered her breakout role there's something about mary so yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: and my first pick is also a cameron diaz movie it's a lifeless ordinary where she's paired with ewan mcgregor in an unlikely romantic action comedy
0: yes i vaguely remember this yes
2: It's so odd. It's just such an odd movie and it, it it charms the hell out of me. And Delroy Lindo and Holly Hunter just eat up every scene that they're in. It's, it's just fun.
0: Do I recall there also being a musical scene of some sort in that movie or yes, (laughs) it's you in singing, right?
2: Yes. okay, I believe so.
0: Yeah. Nice. So my second and third pick are going to have something thematically in common, but um, my second pick is Pretty Woman, uh, starring Julia Roberts, obviously, from 1990. Yeah, like I said, I used to have kind of feminist reservations about this, like, kind of fairy tale version of what happens when a prostitute meets, like, a rich client. Because obviously, this is not a particularly realistic portrayal of that situation. But I have a weakness for it now. I just think her and Richard Gere are so good together in this movie. Um, she is such a charismatic character to begin with, um, singing. Prince in the bathtub and like the scene where she goes shopping at the snooty boutique and they don't let her shop. And then she comes back and she buys all the stuff with the guy's money. She's like, big mistake. Huge. I mean, it's just such a fundamental rom-com that people have referenced in future rom-coms. Lots of fun clothes, lots of fun situations like going to the opera. If you like Julia Roberts, I think you will like this movie. And if you haven't seen it somehow, check it out.
1: My second feature I chose uh "Stepmom," which came out in 1998. It's one of my favorite Julia Roberts movies. It's a pretty sad movie, but I, I kind of, I when mean, I was trying to like pick movies that could be watched with my best friend's wedding, I was trying to pick a movie where Julia Roberts almost kind of flipped and played like the other side mm-hmm. of the character that she's playing. If that, I mean, that's kind of a stretch. But where she is kind of playing like the one that gets the guy, you know, even though it's more nuanced than that in the story. But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a stretch.
2: No, I don't think it's a stretch. I think that's exactly it. Now that I think mm-hmm. about that movie. Mm-hmm. hmm.
0: I just don't remember it. But yeah, I think I saw it at one point. You don't remember yeah. Stepmom? No, oh, man.
1: no. It is like a cry fest.
0: And it's for me, it shows too. I like,
1: um. Julia Roberts range as well. It has Susan Sarandon in it as well, who is wonderful.
2: And then, and then my second and final is High Society, starring Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Grace Kelly, a musical reimagining of the Philadelphia Story. So again, we have a wedding-related love triangle at play, and people singing.
0: Okay. And my final recommendation. So I said it had something thematically in common with pretty woman is the wedding date from 2005 where Dermot Mulroney plays an escort who Deborah Messing's character is taking to a wedding so that she will have a date um, to this wedding where her ex-boyfriend and I guess actually ex-fiance who left her like pretty soon before the wedding is going to be there. And she just wants to show up with this like kind of good looking date. And I think Dermot Mulroney, like I said, I don't find Dermot Mulroney attractive in this movie, but I found him attractive in The Wedding Date. And I think it's because as his escort character, he's playing this kind of like emotionally intelligent, kind of sensitive guy. And he's also a little bit objectified at times, which you don't see a lot of guys putting themselves in roles where they're being objectified as much. And I respect that in an actor. Demi Messing, I can kind of take or leave, but she does really good work in this movie. And Amy Adams shows up oddly, too, in a kind of an early role. I don't think it's like a fantastic rom-com, but it's certainly like an interesting one. And it's one of those things you can put on and just kind of relax and watch it. So, yeah.
1: So my final pick is the 1987 movie Daddy. It's funny because when I was looking up other movies Dermot Mulroney had been in, this movie popped up and I have these memories of it being played in like, like substitute teacher day in like <laughs> middle school health class or something. Like I have these like vivid memories. I'm like, oh, that's where that movie came from. And it, it stars Patricia Arquette. And it's about a guy in high school who gets his girlfriend pregnant. And it's like the their issues and problems and you know what happens it's very 80s dramatic wow <laughs> um yeah it's like it's pretty intense and it's so funny cuz i was like oh my god i totally remember this movie so i know i just picked that cuz i thought it was funny and it it has an early a very young Dermot Mul- Mulroney in it and Patricia Arquette who I think is fantastic so it's kind of interesting to see where people you know start their careers
0: man health class was trippy back in the day we watched like Degrassi junior high like as our, is our <laughs> yeah. in our health class half the time
1: I know they would almost show you these things to like scare you they're like here we're gonna show this to you see what can happen
0: <laughs> well Degrassi I think we did have some nice productive discussions but yeah so like do you think that this is actually a high quality movie or just an interesting like time capsule for you
1: I don't know. I would have to watch it again because I haven't seen it since that. It just like brought up some like vague, like core memories. I don't know. It was, it it was pretty serious and it takes itself pretty seriously. If I do recall, like there's nothing like really, it's not like a rom-com. Yeah. It's not like funny. It's just like, this is, this is the bad things that can happen. Or this is how serious having a baby in high school could be, you know? Yeah,
0: for sure. All right. Well, thanks everybody for your double feature recommendations So upcoming on the show, the next episode after this should be Imagine Me and You, which I will be hosting with Sybil. And coming up, we should be doing movies, including The Philadelphia Story, The Wedding Planner, and many more that are TBA. I think it's probably too late at this point to put in your wedding movie requests for this year, but I have a feeling we'll probably repeat this theme at some point in the future. So if there's a wedding movie you'd really like to see us cover, please write us at feedback at romcomcom And um, please check out, remember to check out Ed's work at sungpoorly.com. If you enjoy hearing him on our show, you will definitely enjoy hearing him on his show. So thanks so much, guys. Um, goodbye. <music>